If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. Hey everybody, today Rado talks through episode 21 of the podcast. And I'm flying solo today, unfortunately. Jen is off in the States doing her yearly visit to all the in-laws. So she will not be joining me later for the Q&A section. Sorry about that. But I think that just means we'll keep the uh, personal portion offline. I won't do that this month. I'll just be twice as much next month when she's back. And I don't know, I haven't, I haven't looked at the questions yet because I never really do, but maybe there'd be some good ones in there for her too. I'll worry about that later. We'll come to that later. Although you can look at the show notes right now and get a sneak peek to see if I actually do Q&A. But in the meantime, there are plenty of other things to talk about, starting with a new list of games of interest, which will be coming up right after this. Okay, so we are now going to be continuing. What page am I on here? I am on page four of my 2017 Games Adventures Geek list, which, as always, I'll be keeping up to date throughout the year. Last podcast, I talked about the first three pages as like a big, hey, everybody, 2017 is going to be great, because of course it's going to be great for games. <laughs> and But since I did that, I've got another page here to talk about, so let's get going with, well, a very, very common what the that came about from me doing my top 10 most anticipated games for 2017 was Pandemic Legacy Season 2. Why didn't I mention that in my 2017 uh, top 10 games of interest? The reason I didn't, and I have actually put it here on this list because I am excited about it, well, there's a couple of things. One, there's no actual entry for it on Board Game Geek. So effectively, officially, it doesn't exist as far as I'm concerned. And, you know, I, I have every reason to suspect it will come out this year. Certainly, Matt Leacock has given every indication uh, several times in several different places that it'll be out. But, you know, I mean, Z-Man just got bought out by Asmodee. Maybe that will lead to some changes in their overall schedule? I don't know. Probably not. It just strikes me as so weird that there's just no information other than those leaks that came out at Essen last year with uh, you know a little bit of information and a picture of the board and stuff like that. There, I just It just seems so strange. If it was coming out, they'd be trying to build more of Groundswell. I mean, certainly for Pandemic Season 1, it got announced a lot earlier. And here we are in 2017 in February, and no one said bubkiss about it yet. So that is the main reason it didn't put on my list. But make no mistake, as soon as it is announced, it becomes my de facto number one most anticipated game of the year by far, because we love the previous one so much. So, it is worth mentioning. That's just why I didn't mention it in last month's, you know, excitement for 2017. But now, let's talk about some new things. And these next two, I'll be honest, I just totally forgot both of these were coming. I would have put them on the... Um, 
list last month as well. Notre Dame, 10th anniversary, and Year of the Dragon, 10th anniversary. Ah, yay! Uh, um, as we move forward, it'll be kind of cool to see more of these 10-year anniversaries coming out for games that I really, really love. These are both phenomenal Steffenfeld designs. I've done run-throughs for both. We love both of these games. And, uh, yeah, I would love to get a new Swank special 10th uh, anniversary edition, particularly because these are both games I've had for a long time, and I both I got both of them used, so they're they're a little threadbare. They're a little. I mean, I'd like to get a fresh new coat of paint. Although I don't know, I I, I don't know if this is going to get like the same deluxe treatment that Puerto Rico did, where it had you know the really lavish deluxe thing with with you know real metal coins and and upgraded components, or if it's just going to be a reprint and they just put 10th anniversary on the cover. I'm not really quite sure. I do know. I think for one of them, maybe both of them. No, I think for Notre Dame, there's actually it's coming with both of them are coming with the expansions, little mini expansions that had come out in previous years that you had to get in the Aaliyah treasure chests, which were always kind of hard to get your hands on. So those uh, expansions are going to come built into the game now, and that's hugely important for Notre Dame because Notre Dame needs that expansion to have legs. So it's great that it's going to be in the box. But I think for one of them, uh, there was something about there's actually going to be an additional little mini expansion, an additional set of new persons for Notre Dame, which is a big deal. Uh, I don't know. Are they going to release that separately for people who aren't going to go out and buy the 10th anniversary because they have the original one? I'm not sure. Many unanswered questions from Ravensburger, but uh, still, 2017, uh, both of these are coming out. And uh, yeah, we'll see if I pick them up or if I just continue to live with my trusty uh, ones that have gotten me this far. And next up, we've got City of Kings. This is actually going to be going on Kickstarter later this month or maybe in March. I'll probably do a run-through for it. Yeah, no, I'll definitely do a run-through for it. And uh, Jen and I, we actually played a game of it, gosh, a couple weeks ago now. And we're totally blown away. This is a cooperative fantasy adventure game where there are all kinds of threats popping up all around the fantasy countryside. And we've got to run around and, and stop the evil from advancing to save the kingdom. And uh, we have to split our time between you know, doing, you know, fighting off bad guys, licking our wounds, and uh, doing... Oh, what would you call them? Well, interesting. I guess there's no other way to put it but then pick up and delivery. Because this is a game where on your turn, you have a certain number of actions you can do. You have a, and you, you have a list of actions on your player board. You get to activate certain ones and uh, you can get better at them. But you know, a lot of the actions are about moving around and initiating fights. But you also have actions about moving this little wagon of, of peasant laborers who work for you. Instead of moving your hero around to go save the day, you can move these workers around to go out to all the countryside that you have explored and saved and, and cleared out so that they will go and mine resources and chop down lumber and repair destroyed buildings and do various things. And um, so it's, it was really interesting. And Jen, I found, you know, I kind of gravitate. I leveled my character up really strong and I was, you know, this super powerful guy and I was running around fighting guys off, generally focused on being a good healer to keep me alive. And then she spent the rest of her time literally just doing pick up and deliver, which is something Jen and I generally don't enjoy very much at all. But we found it very, very compelling here. And another thing that's super cool about this game is that the enemies that show up are randomly generated. And that is to say that um, basically you draw some cards that give them a different collection of powers and abilities and whatnot. So every time you go up a different creature, uh, you have no idea what they're going to be. What you, you know, or every time a new creature spawns, you, you know what they're going to do because they have, you know, hey, these ones fly and, and these ones can set things on fire and these ones are, are you know, 
can spread poison throughout the land. And, uh, you know, and you finally take that guy out who can do poison, fire, and uh, flying. And then another one comes out. I mean, it was so incredibly cool because it meant every monster was almost kind of a puzzle to try to figure out how to approach them. Because there's another interesting thing as well. The, the, the randomly generated world we're exploring is a, is a grid, you know, with, with, with uh, square tiles that are, I think it was a, Four by three grid. You know, they're all face down as you explore. You you turn them face up and you find taverns where you can get quests and, like I said, uh, destroyed temples that can be rebuilt by your workers and various and sundry things. But um, the interesting thing is when a monster comes out, because they're randomly generated, sometimes they're not too tough. Sometimes they can be absolutely devastating and really put the fear in you. And you have to be very, very smart about how you're going to try and take them down. But the interesting thing is, remember, this is a, the, the board is a grid uh, because everything is, you know, the squares. So if a guy is sitting on a different, or basically, range in this game only works in straight lines. If you want to be able to shoot at somebody from a distance or have somebody attack, or if somebody, an enemy wants to attack you from a distance, they can only attack north, south, east, and west. So when a really big bad guy comes out, if you just stay diagonally relative to them, you know, up and left or southeast instead of directly south or east, they don't see you. And they, they completely lose track of you. But it's a small world that we're in. Like I said, it's a little 4 by 3 grid. So as more and more of these guys come up, the board kind of develops all these safe pockets where the bad guys can't see you and will leave you alone so that you can lick your wounds and level up so you can become strong enough. But sometimes they get special powers that let them move around and they can um, you know, chase after you. Sometimes they just stand still and um, you know, just their existence is putting the world in threat. And so you, you have to... A big part of the game is positioning. It's, 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 it's definitely one of those things that's harder to describe uh, verbally than to actually show. Um, so I will be showing, not telling when I do the run-through for it. But I was really blown away by this, and so was Jen. Uh, it was not a short game, but right after we were done, Jen was ready to jump right back in and play again. Um, you know, and again... She spent almost the entire time just doing pick up and deliver. So it's a testament to how smart this game is that we both found it so compelling, so enjoyable. So I mean, like I said, I'm doing a run through for it in the coming weeks. So watch for that uh, for when it goes on Kickstarter, The City of Kings. And then next up, we've got a new expansion for Aeon's End, War Eternal. I'm only mentioning that because Aeon's End is awesome. It made my top ten of last year. And hey, more expansions. Great. Bring them on. Just goes to show Aeon's End probably has a very, very bright future because the publisher is not letting it you know, wither and die on the vine. They're putting more stuff out, so I'm very, very excited for that. And after that, we've got another expansion, Clank, Sunken Treasures, which I hope to get my hands on pretty soon because we really, really enjoyed Clank quite a bit. And this gives you a new flooded dungeon for you to explore, which means there are air pockets and um, you can only stay underwater for so long because now you have to worry about you know holding your breath unless you get equipment that lets you breathe underwater. I guess I'm not. Really, I don't know much about it. I don't need to know. Clank itself was so great. Um, I'm excited. Just you, you had me at Clank expansion. And then it, on top of that, it sounds like it does a lot of really cool new things. So I'm very excited about that. Clank Sunken Treasures. Then we've got Card City 2. 
Now, this is from designer Alvin Viard, and I've covered a lot of his games. In fact, most of his games. Uh, you know, I, I first discovered him when he put out Town Center, which was a lovely, charming... I, I think I've done more run-throughs for Town Center than any other game, because I think I've run through it like three times now, if I recall correctly, because of, you know, it's gone on Kickstarter various times in different editions and whatnot, and just really enjoy it. It's a fantastic solo game, maybe my top ten solo games of all time, but it's also something Jen and I can really enjoy. So, uh, you know, and then he's done Clinic. That was fantastic. Tramways last year. Small City. These are all fantastic games. But one game he had done prior, Card City, basically took Town Center, which one of the cool things about Town Center is it's 3D. It's, uh, you're, it's a city-building, SimCity-style game where you're placing blocks. So you can build upwards in addition to outwards. Card City took Town Center, but flattened it, it made it two-dimensional. And while, you know, we did actually play it, and we thought it worked okay, but we just didn't love it, and we discovered, well, why would we play Card City when we could play Town Center? Now, I understand why Card City existed, because it's much simpler, it's much more streamlined, it's much more of a gateway family-friendly game, whereas, you know, Town Center is really hard to wrap your head around the puzzle of that game. So, Card City was nice, it just wasn't for us. Card City 2, however, is coming out, and apparently, uh, while it's the same basic idea, uh, Alvin Viard has gone back, and he has really um, jacked up and made it a much heavier title. And so, I'm instantly interested, because, you know, again, this guy, every one of his designs has been phenomenal. We've really enjoyed all of them. And so, I'm excited to see, this is his first chance to go back and revisit a design and see what he does with it, so Card City 2 is definitely on my Games of Interest list. Then we've got the Gardens of Versailles, or uh, Die Garten von Versailles, or Gardens of Versailles. This uh, is a uh, Euro. Not much is known about it right now. Obviously, it must be about building up the Gardens of Versailles. There have been other games on that topic, surely. And, uh, you know, we've uh, definitely enjoyed them. And uh, so, what makes this new one interesting? One thing, it's designed by Gunter Burkhardt. And he was the co-designer on Sealand, which is a lovely little area control game that Jay and I enjoy. And he was also a designer on last year's Ulm, which made my top ten of the year as one of the coolest new games that came out last year with one of the freshest, most interesting new game design mechanisms I've seen ever. Ulm is a really... Just a breath of fresh air. We really liked it. And looking back, you know what? Sealand is really pretty unique in its gameplay as well. So, uh, Gunter Burkhart, he is two for two in my book. And so, boom, instantly, I am interested and in see if he's going to be three for three with uh, the Gardens of Versailles. Versailles. That's all I know. Can't wait to find out more. Then we move on to Detective City of Angels. Now, here's the deal. This sounds so cool because, well, actually, this is a... Um, uh, a one against all. Basically, one player is the criminal who has committed some sort of crime in this film noir, you know, Sam Spade, hard-boiled detective type setting in the City of Angels. So one player is the criminal who is trying to get off scot-free, who's trying to avoid being arrested. All the other players are the cops trying to investigate and incriminate and find enough evidence to get the guy arrested and convicted. And Here's the thing. This is why I'm so excited about it. The cop players can interrogate the criminal player to try to get him to slip up and incriminate himself. Just that in and of itself is so cool. I am so excited. And now... Uh, apparently it's a two-player game, so I assume that means there can just be one cop versus one player, and I don't know, maybe that's going to be the coolest way that it actually plays, just me and Jen facing off, uh, you know, on opposite sides of the table, feeling like we're in that interrogation room that you've seen a million times in cop movies and cop TV shows. 
I just love the idea of it. I don't know how it works. I don't know if it's going to work. But man, that is such a cool, exciting idea. I cannot wait to learn more about Detective City of Angels. Okay, then we've got Valletta. This is very, very cool um, because Valletta is the capital of Malta, which is where I live. I've been to Valletta many times. Now, to everybody else, this is just, oh, it's yet another Euro set in some European city that, you know, like, like, Ulm, I was just talking about. But hey, this is a hometown hero for me. I am definitely excited to, uh, you know, play a, a nice economic goods conversion, whatever it might be about, you know, the founding and building up of Valletta, uh, which uh, city I'm very, very familiar with. That's very, very cool. That in and of itself would be enough. But then on top of that, it's being designed by Stefan Dora. And I have really enjoyed quite a few of his games, uh, most notably Milestones and Pergamon. Those are both phenomenal designs. And while his last game from last year, Hellas, was neat, but it was just way too mean for me and Jen. I mean, it was a really cutthroat game. I'm hoping Valletta is not. I'm hoping Valletta is more along the Milestones, Pergamon point of view. Uh, because, you know, I, I, again, I've really enjoyed several of his games. And it's Valletta. I mean, I have to play it, right? I live in Malta. Of course I do. So that's very, very cool. Next up, we've got Bear Park or Baron Park in the original German. This is interesting because... Oh, see, I don't remember his name. Let me look it up. It is from a designer who is really starting to be a kind of a breakout star in Euro design. Uh, Phil Walker Harding. Uh, this is the guy who designed Cacao, Emotep, Sushi Go, and many, many years ago, Archaeology. And I think he's done a few other games, but those are like his big titles that you know, get a lot of love, a lot of respect. Archaeology just got a very nice reprint last year. Sushi Go was a monster hit. Emotep was... Was it nominated for Spiel des Jahres or did it win? I, I don't remember if it won, but I remember it was nominated. Cacao gets a lot of love. It's a very, very... So he's, a, he's an up-and-coming designer. And, um, yeah, this is his next game. It's apparently a tile lane game about building a park for bears. All kinds of bears. Koala bears, pandas, grizzlies, brown bears, I, um, teddy bears? I don't know. Uh, it seems kind of a weird theme, just trying to build the best park you can to get all the right habitat for all the different types of bears. It's kind of odd, uh, because I'm sure koalas need something very, very different than black bears do. But, like I said, this is just more about the pedigree of the designer. He's proven to be a very sharp cookie, so I'm very, very interested in Bear Park. Next up, we've got El Dorado. It's from Reiner Knizia. It's a deck builder. Boom! That, that blows my mind. Um, you know, it's interesting. I've always heard that Reiner Knizia traditionally doesn't play other people's games um, because he doesn't want to be unduly influenced. I, mean, I remember reading this in an interview with him or some or somebody talked about an interview that he had said this, that he doesn't play very many other designs. He always just tries to just come with every design thing fresh and he doesn't want to end up copying other people. So imagine my surprise when he makes a deck builder. I mean, that means he must have played other... Or he must know what deck builders are. Does that mean, is it going to follow all the regular rhythms of a deck builder? Or is it going to be something completely out of out of the realm different? I don't know. I gotta find out, though. Um, you know, Kanitia has enough really stellar, world-class designs that I think it'll be worth checking out El Dorado. And hey, folks, somebody's at the door. So we're going to pause for a second, and we'll be right back.
Okay, sorry about that. That's very exciting. It was Mr. Postman, my best friend in the world, second best after Jen, and he just brought me the prototype for Dungeon Alliance. Yay! Which was in my top 10 most anticipated games of the year. It's actually on Kickstarter right now. It's running late. Man, international shipping has been terrible for the last two months. I mean, here we are. What is this? February 8th today? February 7th? It's like... I don't even know when, what day, but I'm still getting Christmas cards that were sent back in December. And so this prototype has gotten here way late because the Kickstarter is already going. And so it's gotten here too late to play with Jen. So that's a problem. But fortunately, Gordon is going to be visiting this Friday. He's a friend of mine here in Malta, he's a designer on Vengeance and uh, Post Human. So he was just going to visit anyway. So I'll be able to play it two player with him so I can do the run through. Yeah. Yeah, I think it'll work out. Okay, cool. Anyway, sorry, folks. That's neither here nor there. I'm just very excited. I can't wait to try it out. Anyway, back on to games I don't have right here in my house for 2017 that I wish I did. Um, is Mystic Veil, Tale of uh, the, I don't know, Magi and Tales of the Wilderness. Well, actually, it's, again, it's Alf Deutsch. Uh, Mystic Veil, Das Tal de, de Magi und Das Tal de Wildnis. Let's see. Or maybe it's the Tale of the Mages. I don't know. It's a two-in-one expansion for Mystic Veil. We already really like Mystic Veil. I haven't done a run-through for the Mystic Veil um, Veil of Magic expansion yet, but that was great. Absolutely phenomenal. Eventually, I'll get around to doing a quick talk-through video of it. I suppose, Maybe I have I done it? No, I don't think I have. But anyway, really like that. And you know, that first expansion really just kind of rounded out the game and made it a whole thing that stands on its own. And now there's more coming out. So very, very excited for that. Then we move on, and we've got Pit Crew. Now, uh, this is on my list because it's from designer, uh, or, you know, the, uh, the Sidney Engelstein. Or no, is it Sidney? Which, which Engelstein is it? I assume it's the whole family. I mean, they always work together. Um, let me just double check to give where credit is, credit is due. No, no, it is Jeff. Okay, all right. Or, oh, no, Sidney's the, right. It's like a whole family of designers. Jeff Engelson is the lead. So, but again, I'm sure it's Sydney and, oh, I'm sorry, I can't remember your son's name. But anyway, it's from the Engelsteins and, you know, from uh, Stronghold Games. And here's the thing. It's a game about running pit crews in, I don't know if it's formula racing or NASCAR racing or something like that. What makes it interesting to me is, one, it's real time. We always are very interested in that. Uh, you know, because Jen and I, we both just really enjoy real-time gaming. And two, it's from the Engelsteins. And for so long, I have wanted to be able to play and enjoy his games. Because every one of them seems to be so clever and so original and so outside the box in what they do. But they all require three players. Um, just over and over and over again. Or, uh, let's see, you know, there was one that played with two, but it was like a really mean in your, it was basically a recreation of StarCraft, a video game, with like really asymmetrical power. So Jen and I didn't want to play that because we didn't want to fight each other and whatnot, like a, a real-time strategy game. Oh, that was, you know, anyway, long story short, the Engelsteins have made another real-time game, you know, much like Space Cadets, which is something I've never really gotten a chance to enjoy because of the player counts. And uh, while I don't particularly care about the subject matter, it's not particularly enticing, I'm just hoping that once again they've come up with something really cool and really fresh and really innovative, and this time they've made it work for two. Fingers crossed on Pit Crew. Then we move on to Port Royal, The Adventure Begins. Das Abenteuer beginnt. Woohoo! Alexander Pfister gives us a campaign mode expansion for Port Royal. 
The last expansion for Port Royal was phenomenal because it added, uh, you know, cooperative play to, you know, the really neat little push your luck pirate game of Port Royal. I mean, my top 10 pirate games. And we absolutely, I mean, it, the, the turning into a co-op game just made it so fantastic. But now it's got a campaign that you can play over multiple sessions. That's very, very cool too. Now I'm hoping, fingers crossed, that the campaign will work with cooperative play. But heck, even if it's not, I'm, I'm still excited. I'm totally on board for this. Port Royal, the adventure begins. Then we come to Professor Evil and the Citadel of Time. And, you know, often when I, you know, basically, I have an RSS feed that notifies me with, when any new board game gets added to Board Game Geek, you know, any new listing. And, I mean, I would say on average, it's probably like, you know, 10 to 20 new games show up every day. Uh, if sometimes more. But, yeah, I mean, uh, quite a few. And so, you know, once a week or maybe once every couple of weeks, I just sit down for an hour and I just go through every single new game that's been listed on board game. That's how, that's, my, that's how I follow the news of the game industry. That's how I find out stuff. And often, because I do this, when I see an entry for a game, you know, it just got listed and there's nothing there. And I always wonder, and I've complained about this before, why do the publishers do that? Why? I mean, actually, I listed this here on February 2nd. It's a week later. Let's see if they've actually put any information about Professor Evil and the Citadel of Time. Because I'll tell you why I put this on my list. It has nothing to do with the fact that there's a Citadel of Time um, and Professor Evil is causing trouble. Uh, it's entirely because... Because it is from Matthew Dunstan and Brett Gilbert, and the last game they collaborated on that I played was Elysium. And Jen and I love Elysium to death. Uh, it was one of the 10 best games of that year. It's, I think it's in my top 30 games of all time. Absolutely phenomenal game. So, those two guys getting together again to make, I don't know, something that has something to do with time travel and adventure, I can only assume from the title. I don't know. And looking at it again, yeah, it's been a week that this has been on Board Game Geek, and here's the description. Professor Evil and the Citadel of Time is a game. Details to come. You know, man, I almost want to take it off the list just... Just, to, just because you know, I, I can't support this. This is ridiculous. I mean, absolutely. Oh, there are a couple of pictures. The art looks very nice, but I don't care. Uh, this is on the list solely due to the um, pedigree of the. This design team has put out one of the best games that have come out in years. So, how will their sophomore effort? Um, you know, not this is. I mean, they both published games with other designers and you know solo projects, but working together again, is this going to live up? I don't know. Let's find out. But then, in the meantime, let's move on to Quadropolis Public Services. Quadropolis just missed making my top 10 of the year. I think it was number 12 on my top uh, games of the year for 2017. We really liked it a lot. And hooray! Days of Wonder is bringing out an expansion for it, which is very, very cool. They don't do that very often, do they? I don't think so. Let's look over my... Well, what am I talking about? Of course, Memoir 44 got a bajillion expansions, and I guess Ticket to Ride. But... Um, yeah. I don't know. I, 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 but yeah, I mean, there's so many of them that have never really gotten much in the way of expansion content, so they must be really happy with the game. I'm very happy with it. I can't wait to see more. And hopefully, at the same time this comes out, they will finally announce a solution for all the people like me who got the, uh, the, you know, the first edition of Quadropolis and your, our, our meeples started snapping and cracking, um, which is such a shame because they're beautiful. And don't get me wrong, they don't actually break. They just get like these little like hairline fractures running through them. It's really unfortunate. And, uh, man, I'd like to get that fixed, but I, um, but you know, who cares? The gameplay is so great in Quadropolis. I'm very excited for a new expansion. 
Then we've got Seventh Cross. And this, I don't know much about. Once again, there's very little to go on here, as is so often the case. It's from level 99, uh, from Dalton, you know, who's like, you know, I guess he is level 99. And, you know, while I've, the type of games he designed are never the ones I've been particularly interested in in the past, I'm very interested in this. Because, oh, how did, how did the description put it? It was actually not a halfway bad description now that I think about it, because now I'm trying to remember. It was a, um, right, right, right. It was a, oh, wow. Hey, wait a minute. There's a whole big new description for it now. Well done, Level 99 Games, for not just leaving the little tiny description in, but coming up with a big one. All right. When I saw this a week ago, all it said was, this is a roguelike exploration game for two to six players that combines elements of paragraph adventure games like Tales of Arabian Nights and exploration elements like Betrayal at House on the Hill, together to form a Castlevania slash Bloodborne slash Helsing sort of narrative adventure. That sounds very cool. I mean, you know, basically vampire hunters um, traveling around in you know a dungeon, whether it's a dungeon or a, you know, it's probably going to be more like you know Dracula's mansion or something like that. But dealing with Tales of Arabian Night, you know, look up page thirteen, entry seven, and make a choice after your uh, teammate or opponent. It doesn't say whether this is cooperative. I'm going to assume it's competitive. Who knows? Again, not that much information, but who cares? Jen loves. Reading from adventure books, um, you know, so it's why we still own Agents of Smirsh and you know, above and below. Uh, so another game that does that, but also does dungeon crawling type stuff. I hope there aren't very many dice in it. Fingers crossed. Hope, hope, hope. But I'm interested. I, I, I am definitely on board to check out Seventh Cross. And uh, let's see, this placeholder laptop I've got seems to have just spontaneously died. Come on, I'm hitting back so I can go back to the. Geek list. So basically, a month ago, my laptop dropped. Uh, Jen startled me, and it kind of fell out of my lap and hit the the floor bad, and just like shattered. And it's been in the shop ever since because, of course, I'm in Malta, and uh, you can't get replacement motherboard components without waiting a month. So it was cool. The store gave me this loner laptop I've been using, but oh my gosh, it is so slow. All right. And I've stalled long enough. We're back on the geek list. Let's talk about the next one. Santo Domingo. I don't know much about this. It's apparently a re-implementation of an earlier game called Visby, which I guess is some kind of card game. I don't know much about Visby either. I Honestly, I have to admit, I have not done much research on this. Here's why it made the list. It is from the designer of Arkwright. Which was a brilliant design, um, you know, really rare, very cool. Even though it was way too big, way too long, and way too heavy for me and Jen. But my understanding is this is a much lighter card-driven game. And considering how good the design on Arkwright was, I'm very, very interested to see. Um, I'm going to assume the design on this is equally good. It's just something that's going to be a little bit more in Jen's and my wheelhouse in terms of game length and whatnot. So uh, Santo Domingo is on the list. Then we've got Thrash and Roll. Amplified, <coughs> oh, excuse me, which is uh, basically a the first expansion to Thrash and Roll. I'm not quite sure how this works because apparently there's going to be a reimplementation of Thrash and Roll, um, which is called Assassins something or other. I forget. Um, 
I don't even think that's out yet. Maybe the existence of this has changed the plans for the other. All I know is Jen and I very much, and you can watch my run-through, we really enjoyed this dice worker placement game where you are the band manager of a thrash metal band, which, you know, I mean, it's a testament to how good the game is because, you know, it was such, the art style was a turnoff for Jen, the subject matter was a turnoff for Jen, but the gameplay was so good. I mean, we've definitely kept it. I can see it right there on the shelf right now. And now it's getting new stuff. Is it going to give us the opportunity to manage a band that's not a thrash? metal band? Probably not. But still, I'm sure it'll add a bunch of new cool stuff to the game. So I'm looking forward to seeing that. So those are on the list. I've got a few more 2017 games of interest that I should mention because uh, just a couple weeks ago, I was in Portugal at Liericon. I think I'm pronouncing that right, although I'm probably... I just want to say, you know, Liericon. Oh, I just can't say it. Um, It is a yearly board game convention that happens in Portugal, uh, you know, right at the beginning, January, late January, early February. And it is a wonderfully popular, neat little uh, convention. You know, it's like, Three to five hundred folks. It's at a little seaside resort. It's you know, in, it's in the depths of winter, so you know the re- the resort is not very busy. It's just everybody who's in the hotel for that for this weekend is there to play games and. Lots of big name board game designers from Europe show up at this thing every year. Of course, there's all the Portuguese guys, you know, uh, like, you know, Vita Lasarda and, you know, the designers of Madeira and, you know, who are actually the co-sponsors of the whole show or, you know, they, they help organize the whole show. Uh, but in the, in the past, you've had Martin Wallace come, you've had Richard Breeze come. This year, as in every year, another attendee was Mac Gertz, you know, one of the most respected Euro designer uh, board game designers working today. And, you know, I mean, you know how much I love Navigador. And Steamship, he has been working on this thing for like a decade now. Um, you know, just tweaking it and tweaking it and changing it and then throwing it away and then starting all over again. Um, you know, and every year he's got another prototype to show and it never quite gets finished. I mean, Steamship Company is basically becoming the Duke Nukem Forever of the board game industry at this point. And, you know, if you know the end result of Duke Nukem Forever, that could be kind of scary. But I love Concordia so much. And, you know, we've really enjoyed Hamburgum and Navigador as well. But, oh my gosh, Concordia is so great. I've been excited about it. Now, I got to play Steamship Company at Essen a couple of years ago. And I left thinking, wow, that was very, very cool. But, gee, boy, not for me. It really seemed like it was more along the lines of his older games, Imperium. Uh, style games, and I mean, you know, I thought it was neat, but just it was not. I was kind, of, I kind of tempered my enthusiasm because it was just, it was, it was too stock market heavy, and and, and you know, it was just really focusing on stuff that wasn't that interesting to me. So. I knew Mac was going to be there, and I knew he was demoing it. Like, oh, I don't know if I want to play another prototype of it because it just wasn't for us. And everybody told me, no, 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 you got to play it. It's so radically different. It's radically different. And Mac said, you must sit down. It has changed radically. That's what he sounds like. And so I finally sat down, and oh my god, it is now the heir apparent to um uh, to Concordia. If you take you know Hamburgum was kind of uh, you know it was uh, you know like. A really great Rondell Euro-style resource management game, but then he took what he did with Hamburgum, which was, of course was built on the you know backs of his previous games. But he took Hamburgum and then took it to the next level with Navigador. This is basically taking Concordia to the next level because the core thing that drives it now, which was not the case a couple of years ago, is the Concordia card hand management system of I've got these cards, I keep playing them. 
And eventually, I'm going to play the card that lets me recall all my hand so I can reset and start playing again. But I can also copy the cards that other players play. And, um, you know, so that same basic thing that drives Concordian is so brilliant, so good. And, you know, you know it's a minor deck builder because you're adding more cards to that deck and, uh, and all that. But it, um, you know, completely gets rid of the... Gosh, I, I guess... Well, I was going to say this gets rid of the area control of Concordia, but not quite. It just does it in such a radically different way. Because in this game, uh, we are building up, you know, fleets of steamships. And man, this game is a love letter to the rise of the steamship. I mean, everything is based on historical ships. There's, you know, all kinds of background information about these ships and whatnot, and... But basically, we're using Concordia systems to build ships and deploy them all over the world and um, and run these ships to generate money so we can build more steamships. And um, so, and these steamships, we operate the steamships to get contracts to uh, do, you know, international mail delivery, passenger delivery, and cargo delivery. And the thing is, the steamships that are coming out that we can build are constantly getting better and better and better because this game covers, I think, like a 50-year time span of the first steamships all the way up to, you know, the early 20th century. And all the stats that are realistic depictions of the statistics of these real-world ships, the year they were built, the speed they uh, could go, the tonnage that they could carry, these are all based on on the real world stats. It's like every card in this game is kind of like, you know, a baseball card, but for steamships. And so you learn so much about these ships and the history and you know, the game takes place in chronological linear order. But the thing is, as you're getting these new ships and you want to deploy them to different ports around the world, um, you, uh, you want to be putting them... You, if, if I've got the newest, hottest ship, or the fastest ship, or the ship that can carry the most stuff, I need to put it in a port where it outshines all the other ships that are already there. Because then that's how I get the new contracts. But the tricky thing is, all these different ships that are being built have all kinds of different stats. So as the game evolves, it becomes this really interesting puzzle of, okay, these are the ships I can afford to buy right now. But... Um, you know, if I look at you know, whether I go to the Far East or whether I go to South America or Europe, there's no real good place for me to deploy this. Well, no, no, no. It's it at least it's faster. It'd be the fastest ship if I put it in Africa. But I don't particularly um, you know, want to get control of Africa because there's no good offices for me to set up there right now. So getting in Africa isn't very excited. So should I deploy it in South America, which is where I really want to be anyway? Um, or, or do I say, heck with it, I'm not going to buy this ship because it's too far behind the, you know, the curve. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll wait another turn, make some more money so I can buy another ship later. It's really, you know, again, it's one of those things you have to play. But I really, really enjoyed it quite a bit. And now... It's still going through a lot of iterations. I mean, I gave him a lot of feedback. And actually, after I was done, Vito Lasarda, you know, designer of Kanban and Vinos and CO2, he came over and we, he was talking with Mac about his game and he wanted to hear, well, what happened in this game we played? Cause we had just tried a new thing that was kind of interesting that Mac had an idea for. So it was just, it, it was a testament to the Ericon that you get to go and, you know, interface with these designers, these world-class designers, and give them feedback, and you, and you see them integrating the you know, ideas just based on the play you did right there. It was so much fun. But the game itself, he seemed pretty confident that after all these years of development, this is the year it's going to come out. And I said earlier, I was worried it was going to be a Duke Nukem forever. I'm not worried anymore. It looks like it's going to be fantastic. Steamship Company, I'm very, very excited for it. But that's not the only game I played. I played several prototypes when I was at the Aircon. I also played... Um, oh, the uh, speaking of Vito Lasarda, the this year we are going to be getting a new reprint of CO2. 
Um, it's uh, actually was in my top 10. I mentioned last month. I got to play a prototype of it. And it was very, very cool. Very, very interesting. Now, the most interesting thing about it is, <clears throat> excuse me, the core game hasn't changed at all. It's just that there are dozens of little tweaks and modifications that every single one of them was done to basically streamline the gameplay. Because CO2 is a phenomenal game, but it is definitely a game that a lot of people have a very, very hard time wrapping their head around. Um, you know, both because of the writing style of the original rules was not very good, but just because it had so many weird unusual approaches to the way everything works. It was a semi-cooperative game where players are building power plants all over the world trying to save humanity from global warming, basically. And, uh, you know, it was very, very focused on that. And, you know, but it was a game where, you know, if you start a project, it's not likely that you're going to be the one to finish it. There was a lot of collaboration and collusion between players. Sometimes, um, friendly, sometimes not so friendly. And, uh, you know, but it was a really, really sharp game. And so, all the tweaks and changes, I mean, there were, I, I don't even remember what they all were now, but there were a bunch of them. It didn't change the core, the heart of CO2, but they were all designed to make the game easier to learn, a little bit more streamlined to play. And I mean, I have to admit, I haven't played CO2 for a year, so it'd be kind of hard to contrast and compare how it felt new versus old. All I know is I had a blast playing it. But what I wanted to mention that was so cool about it is, well, I asked, well, why is this getting reprinted now? And he said, well, basically, the original publisher, uh, Geochix, they've been after him ever since it printed to print a new one. They've been wanting to do an update to it. So he's finally relented. And in part, it's because, I guess, Portugal, he is a Portuguese designer, is now, uh, you know, in the UN, they are now like the leader of, of some kind of, uh, you know, uh, uh, climate change thing. I mean, basically, Portugal apparently is now taking a big, strong lead in you know, trying to spearhead the charge to combat global warming. And he felt, well, you know, if my country is stepping up to do this, I can certainly step up to revisit this game and see what I can do to improve it and you know, maybe put it in front of more players and you know, give them the opportunity to save the world. And you know, so that's cool in of itself. But what I thought was most interesting about this game is I forget the exact numbers. If you've ever played the original game, um, it's a semi-cooperative game because, of course, you know we're all at the beginning of the game. All the continents of the world are you know pumping tons of CO2 into the air using you know coal plants and you know natural gas plants and all that. And our job as entrepreneurs is to replace all those all around the world with you know sustainable, renewable, clean energy sources. And the thing is. The longer it takes us to do that, the more CO2 gets pumped into the air. And um, you know, every round, more and more CO2 gets pumped into the air. If, t- if 500 parts per billion or some number gets hit, everybody loses. Because it's a point of no return. You know, the, the earth has failed and you know, literally the world is doomed. And so as players, we occasionally have to put aside our competitive urges and work together to make sure that doesn't happen. But what was interesting in the original board is there was another number at 500... It was instant death. The world is toast. At 450, it was, I believe that was called the point of no return. It was on the board just to make the point that, hey, you know what? If you're playing the, you know, the 450 number, and I forget, it's parts per billion of CO2 in the atmosphere. I forget what it was exactly, but it was based on the real world number. Um, when the game came out, whatever it was, seven years ago, eight years ago, I'd have to look up the original date. 450 is what everybody was warning. This is the point where we have to stop before we cross that line. That's the point of no return. It's the point where if we can stop ourselves, the uh, you know things can turn around. 
And, um, you know, and so that, you know, it was put. It was a big red X on the board. The interesting thing is, today, in 2017, in the real world, we've already passed that number. And it's a sobering thought. If, like me, you take serious the threat of human-caused client change. If you don't, I'm sorry that you're having to be um, listened to this liberal propaganda agenda. But sorry, folks, I'm a liberal. I don't want to go too far into the politics. But I thought it was really interesting because we talked about this. That, you know, in the real world, we have gone already past that number. And, um, you know, I asked, well, does that mean are you going to change the board? And he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, then that means um, you should start, you should just rescale the, the 1 to 500 of the original game and start us at whatever we are today right now, 460, 470, and still put that, that in number of 500, you know, at the point of no return to drive home the fact that, you know, things are getting better. Things are getting worse. And we are getting closer and closer to the edge of the cliff. And uh, he said, yeah, I should do that. And I thought that was actually, well, one, I thought it was really cool that I had that kind of influence. I mean, again, it's a, it's a testament to how awesome Lyricon is that you go and you get to interface with these guys and, and have a real impact on these games. But, you know, I mean, he, this is something he takes really seriously. His country takes really seriously. I take really seriously. And this game takes really seriously while still being a really fun, interesting, and very innovative game. So all I'm saying is CO2, the, uh, the new reprint, it looks like it's really cool. Oh, by the way, the other thing we didn't get to play, um, the new reprint is going to have a fully cooperative set of rules and you'll be able to flip the board over and play on the co-op the fully cooperative side for people who were put off by the semi-cooperative nature of the game originally now you can play it as a fully co-op i'm super stoked about that too now there is one thing for all the praise i'm lavishing on this because it it was great i mean co2 was really phenomenal here's one thing that might tick some people off and i'm really shocked by this if you get this new version it will be incompatible with the original co2 rules you know, unlike, you know, last year he did a reprint of Vinos, which, um, you know, really, again, streamlined the gameplay, made it a little bit more accessible while not, you know, while, while still being true to the core of the game and adding new stuff as well. You know, he did that last year with Vinos, but for the Vinos reprint, you could still play with the original rules. My understanding is with this one, you will not be able to. And so, folks, if you just are a diehard lover of CO2, and I mean, you love it the way it is, and you don't want to see it change, this is something you have to bear in mind. I've already gotten rid of my copy of CO2, um, and I don't regret it because I'm really excited to try it as a fully cooperative game, but this is something to bear in mind. Just heads up. All right, but anyway, uh, that wasn't all I played. What else did I play? Oh, I, oh, I, pl- I got to play not a full game, about half a game, I think, of the upcoming um, Brazil which is, you know, from the designers of Panamax and the Zion Madeira, you know, Paulo and Nuno, they are working together again. This is their next big magnum opus. And we sat down and played it. And yeah, it's another big, crazy, heavy magnum opus. Now, one thing I'm happy to say is I would not say it's as crazy, heavy involved as Madeira, which was brilliant in its design and implementation, but just a little bit too heavy for me and Jen. This one, it's not quite that heavy. It's more on the Panamax scale, which is still say fairly heavy. Uh, and it's very, very interesting. It is about the, uh, you know, the early days of building up the uh, gold mining industry in Brazil. And uh, has a lot of interesting stuff going on. <clears throat> At the center of it is the game itself is a Rondell-based game. And they were, t- they were talking about how the reason they, they've made a Rondell-based game is because they've been coming to the Aericon, they, they've been organizing the Aericon for years, and Matt Gertz has been coming for years, and every year he always tells them, how come you guys haven't made a Rondell game? Do you not know how awesome Rondells are? And so they finally said, you know what, Mac? 
fine, we're going to do it. And so they have designed a Rondell-based game. And it's a very, very interesting Rondell because, um, you know, the Rondell itself is communal. We don't all have our own individual pieces. There are two pieces on this Rondell. And they represent the two factions um, that are vying for control of Brazil during you know the, you know this period of history. There is the faction that represents the old guard in Europe that wants to maintain control of their colony. But there is the faction for independence that wants nothing to do with that. And the thing is, you've got these two markers, and on your turn you're going to move forward, you know, you know, multiple spaces and land on a space and do whatever it says, you know, standard Rondell stuff. But on your turn, you either move the um, the old world or the new world marker on there. And that means that will give you access to different portions of the board. And it means you will be favored. In this clash of ideology, who is going to win? Well, in history, it turns out independence won. But um, in this game, it might rewrite history that you know Brazil didn't become an independent, uh, you know, and it, and it did still owe its fealty to um, to Portugal, you know, potentially because you know players as a group. Because here's the thing: um, if players work more with the old guard instead of the new guard, the old guard becomes more powerful. At the end of the game, there is going to be a reckoning. If the old guard wins, then the players who back the old guard will benefit, and the players who didn't will lose. So. You've got to make a bet on which party, for all intents and purposes, the old guard or the new guard, the old world or the new world, are you going to support? And that's a big part of that is deciding um, which way your opponents are going to go. Are they? Is everybody going that way? Are you going to jump on that bandwagon? Or are you going to say, to heck with that? If you're all going that way, I'm going to go this way, and I'm going to make sure the other faction wins so all of you guys suffer. There's a lot of really cool stuff in the game, and it wasn't finished yet, although they are working for, they are aiming for a release this year at Essen. But, I mean, I saw a lot of really cool, clever ideas. I mean, and I'm not going to go into a lot of detail, but they're, you know, like their previous games, it's just full to the brim of really cool, interesting economic stuff. Very outside-of-the-box design. Very, very neat. Uh, you can look for it coming later this year, Brazil. Let's see. And what else did I play? Oh, you know, so Brazil is going to be published by What's Your Game? And they let me see another game that isn't announced yet. I forget what its name was. They have a placeholder title. It's called Loot Island. L-O-O-T Island. You can't read about this anywhere, as far as I know. And I don't know if that's going to be the final title. It probably won't. Because they're still trying to decide whether it should be pirates or Vikings. <laughs> In all honesty. And I voted pirates. But I can see Vikings would work too. But uh, it is hard to describe this game. But it was my game of the show. Um, you know, it is... At this point, uh, it was so good. I played this prototype. We sat down and played it as a four-player game. I immediately wanted to play it again as a two-player game to see how well, well it's going to work for me and Jen because I think we're both going to love this game so much. It is a card-driven game where we are all on a ship that is sailing around an island full of, of, of treasure. And the treasure is cursed. But it doesn't have to be cursed treasure. That would be if it's the pirate theme. If it's the Viking theme, it instead it is full of outposts with uh, people who will fight back. Instead, it's treasure where the curse will fight back. You know, I mean, it works either way. But we're all on this ship together, and the ship is sailing clockwise around, trying to come into ports. When it, when it lands on a given port, it has the opportunity 
to grab treasures from that particular port. And the thing is, we all have a hand of cards. We're all playing cards that represent the treasures that are going to be available in all these ports. And so if I see you putting a lot of cards in there, I want to put some cards in there myself so that I can partake of the treasure that's there. It actually kind of reminded me a little bit of the treasure map building that happens in Tobago. Although there's none of the spatial stuff that happens in Tobago. This is just all about building up all these caches of treasure. And um, But the thing is... If I see other players building up all these caches of treasure in this port and I haven't gotten in there and I don't think I'm going to get very much out of it, in any time you want, if you've got two matching cards, you can discard them to do all these special powers. One of those special powers is to make the ship skip that port entirely and jump ahead to the next port where I happen to be building up my own goods. There's, all, there's so much cool stuff you can do in this little game, Loot Island. It's simple... I'm not going to say it reinvents the wheel, but it was so fast, so fluid. I had so much fun playing this game. Um, you know, if it holds up, I don't care if it's Pirates or Vikings, in all honesty. The thing is that there was a little bit of take that in the game, and you know how I feel about that. It's a testament to how strong this game is that I loved it regardless. Look for it, folks. I mean, I imagine they'll announce more information about it later on in the year. Um, but, yeah, it's... I would say, like last year around this time, I was lucky enough to say that I think, what was I talking about earlier? Quadropolis might make my top 10 of the year. It didn't. It made my 12, but it was still amazing. I'm calling it right now. Loot Island might make my top 10 of the year because it was so amazing from What's Your Game. All right. And see, I'm, there were a few other games I played, um, but yeah, like one of them, um, Half Pint Heroes, I'm going to be doing a run-through of that. I brought the prototype back, um, and I, I brought another prototype back for um, NIMBY and... I had a great time. But, you know what, folks? That's enough. I think I'm done with uh, new games of interest for now. And I need some water pretty badly. So when we come back, I don't know what we're going to cover. But I'll be back in a second. Okie dokie. So, here's what we're going to do. A few months ago... Somebody asked me in the Q&A if I could run through the top 50 games as rated by BoardGameGeek. Just a quick rundown of the list, saying whatever I might have to say on the topic, and I did. And now, somebody has followed up and requested, hey, could you do the uh, top 100 to the top 50? And I say, yeah, let's do it. I got BGG open right here, and I'm looking at number 100, which is Ticket to Ride Nordic Countries. I don't really have much to say on that. I'm sure I mentioned before, because I'm sure Ticket to Ride was in the top 50. The, uh, you know, Jen and I, we've gotten rid of our Ticket to Rides, although we had quite a lot. We had Ticket to Ride Nordic Country, Ticket to Ride Europe, Ticket to Ride Switzerland, um, a couple of other ones. And I ultimately just got rid of all because we just realized as time goes on, we just have less and less use for straight gateway games. And now I understand that Nordic Countries is a little bit more going on than your average ticket to ride, because I think that's the one that actually has passengers and whatnot. And I'm sure it's awesome. But I just realized we were never going to get around to playing that thing unless somebody wanted a run-through of it. So off it went, and that's all I have to say. Ticket to ride is lovely. We've played it enough. We don't need to play it anymore in any form. So um, let's move on to number 99, Village, which is a lovely, lovely game. Such a shame that it doesn't get more recognition. I guess it got a fair bit. I mean, it was actually nominated for the Kenner Spiel, wasn't it? I think it might have been. I mean, which is a pretty big deal in and of itself. And it's a really, really clever game that 
doesn't quite fit into the... Um, it's, it's not a worker placement. It's a worker removal game where all the workers are scattered out on the board right at the beginning of a round as part of setup, and there's dozens of them in all these different areas that indicate what you can do. And you pull cubes off the board to indicate you're going to do those actions. And then you see what you can do with those cubes as well. It works really nicely, and it, probably one of the most interesting things about it is that it has this concept of the family, the members of the family that you represent in this local village that will last for generations. I mean, your, your, uh, Family will have kids, they will grow up, they will get careers and all kinds of stuff, uh, whether it's working in town at the blacksmith or becoming the local mayor or just traveling the world and uh, you know being a vagabond. The interesting thing about it is all these family members will eventually grow old and die. And I thought that was very, very cool because you're trying to earn glory for them in their life so that when they die, they are buried in the higher victory point uh, burial plots, basically. And so that's a big, big part of the game. Because uh, one of the other elements is there's this passage of time mechanism. The more stuff you do, the more time passes, which means your characters age quicker, and sooner or later they're going to start dropping off. And that's so cool. The only problem with this is Jen would find herself getting too emotionally attached to the family members, and she just did not want to... She was not comfortable having to make strategic decisions about when to kill these people so that she could maximize the points off their the glory of their death, basically. Or, you know, the glory of their life. And we both thought it was a very, very clever game. I really liked it a lot, but we ultimately got rid of it for that reason. It was just... You know, it, it just made Jen uncomfortable. I mean, she did not enjoy making those decisions. So we had to get rid of it, even though it's a brilliant game and it has a brilliant expansion that makes it even better. That was number 99, Village. Number 98 is Teach You, which I've never played before. I guess this is some kind of trick-taking game, and it's a hugely popular one. People who love it, love it to bits. But I don't know. I've never heard anybody say that Teach You works well with two. So I doubt it's something I'll ever end up playing. Uh, plus, you know, it's a pure abstract card game, which is another big turnoff for me. Speaking of which, number 97 is Go, the ultimate abstract. And certainly not something that's... I mean, I'm sure I played, I'm sure I played Go when I was a kid. I kind of dimly remember moving those stones around and claiming other stones and whatnot. I probably played it in some digital form, but just not something for me and Jen... The era of modern board games, we need to have a theme. We need to have something that pulls us in, that gives us a role in this world. Um, abstracts are just a total turnoff for us. 96 is Hands of Tuconica, which I did actually try playing several years ago um, as a two-player game. And it was terrible. The initial rules that came with that game had, you know, to, instead of tightening up the board, there's this weird thing where... As players claim spots, or what? Basically, it's a the map is a collection of routes between cities, and you're trying to collect spots on those routes to. I honestly, I don't even remember what. Do Euroy type things, and the interesting thing was to try and tighten the board up. There was this rule about how player two was required to not grab spaces that were more than a certain distance from player one. It was this really kind of ham-fisted thing that we just didn't think worked very well at all. And so we got rid of it and never even actually played a full game of it. And I've heard since then that a, the designers come up with an entirely different and much more well-considered two-player variant. So I've always been curious to try to go back to try it again when I found out that, the, that apparently the new two-player rules are actually very good. 
Then I found out, apparently, it's also a pretty cutthroat game as well. So, I don't know. I'm really on the fence about it. Um, and maybe I should try it. I mean, heck, it's number 96, according to Board Game Geek. Then number 95, Lagrana. Oh my gosh, I love this game so much. It's in my top 20. In my top 20 or my top 30. Absolutely phenomenal game of farming... You know, combining all these different elements from a lot of different really awesome Uwe Rosenberg and Steffen Feld games and, you know, some other designers thrown into. Really, really phenomenal. I don't have to talk about it much, though, because you can watch my run-through of it where I just loved all over it. And then we go to number 94, Age of Steam. Never played it, probably never will. I already have Railways of the World, which is the most recent and therefore, in my mind, best iteration on the Age of Steam game design formula from designer Martin Wallace. Um, I guess there was Age of Steam first, and then there was Steam, and then finally there was Railroad, Ty- Railroad Tycoon, which was ultimately repackaged as Railways of the World. And they all three share the same basic skeleton of how the game flows and how the actions work, but there's just a lot of variances in the way money works and investment works and all kinds of stuff. And I had chose Railways of the World because from everything I had researched, it struck me as the most streamlined game because uh, it was the newer one that was designed for a wider audience, which fits me and Jen just fine. My understanding is the older age of Steam, which is number 94, and Steam are just much, much harder. I did, when I did my run-through of Railways of the World, I did in my final thoughts contrast and compare what the differences between the games are. I really don't remember what they are now, but I know that they were big enough that I was convinced never to ever try Age of Steam. So, don't have much to say, although I just said a lot of stuff for not much to say. Moving on to number 93 is Lord of the Rings, the card game, which I've done a run-through for, and it's lovely. It's actually really surprising, because it kind of breaks the rules for me. I'm generally not keen on games that have tons and tons of complexity with lots of keywords and special little rules you have to keep track of, even if it's a cooperative game, even if it's a Lord of the Rings game, which is what this is. Um, But the gameplay here is good enough, the challenge is good enough, the deck construction is interesting enough that it was a keeper for us. In fact, we actually have a whole bunch of expansion content for it too, although I don't know when I'll ever get a chance to play all that stuff because it's always moving on to the next thing. Speaking of which, let's move on to number 92, Mage Wars Arena, which I guess, I'm not, I've never really paid much attention to Mage Wars. It's totally not for me and Jen, you know, gladiatorial combat between wizards summoning creatures to do their fighting for them, all on Magic the Gathering. Dueling wizards, you know, people always complain about zombies are overplayed and, um, oh, uh, Oh, what? Oh, pirates are overplayed, and nowadays Vikings are overplayed. How come nobody ever complains about the truly overplayed theme of dueling wizards? I mean, I mean, yeah, it was kind of cool in Magic the Gathering. I think we've had enough of it. I certainly have. It's of no interest to me, but I do know it's apparently a very, very... The Mage Wars games are very, very good. Just really not particularly interesting at all. Then we go on to, for us, for me and Jen, that is. Number 91, Princes of Florence. This is an older classic, well, from 2000, which is an old classic in modern designer board game terms. And it's interesting. We never really played it because originally it didn't have rules for two. Actually, wait, no, 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 that's not true. There were variant rules for tool. For two. Jen and I tried it years ago, thought it really was not very good with two with those variant rules. Then I walked away, never thought about it again. Not too long ago, I did get a chance to play it as a four-player game when I was down in Florida. And I found, boy, did I not like it. Because the interesting thing is, this is one of those games, I guess the term is, it's a fragile game. It's the type of game where if players 
don't play in an optimal way, if players don't make the right choices or um, you know the, the smart choices, that things can kind of go off the rails and give unfair advantages to one player over the other and kind of inadvertently king make. And that was the situation I found myself in when I was playing it. I'm not saying I was necessarily the one. Actually, no, there was a turn where I would I was in a situation to outbid somebody for something that I didn't particularly want, and I was hoping somebody else would outbid them because I didn't want it. And But the other person uh, also didn't outbid them for it. And so the guy who wanted it got it, and he ended up winning the game. And I'm not saying he won the game because he got this one particular tile really cheap that me and this other player were supposed to artificially bid up to make sure he would get it. And since um, it, and it, I was the one, I was the bad guy, because based on the turn order, based on how you're, quote, supposed to play, if you're an expert player of Princess of Florence, I totally upset the balance of the game. And it was at that moment I decided, yeah, I don't want to play this game. Or certainly, I mean, it was kind of a tricky situation you put in. Because, but I, under, I understood the problem. And I totally saw it. Um, you know, that this was a game where if everybody wasn't playing at peak efficiency, doing the right things at the right time, it could really get out of whack. It's, quote, fragile. And I've never looked at it again. Not really interested. Um, it's not something I think you see as often in designs that are more modern, you know, designs from the last five, six years. But anyway, that was number 91, Princes of Florence. Uh, number 90 is Viticulture, which is a lovely worker placement game with some very, very cool tweaks. The original base game, I thought, had some really weird balance issues with crazy, unpredictable swinginess of the action cards you can get. Although, ultimately, a an expansion for uh, Viticulture was released that really cleaned that up and added so much stuff, so much content to the game. It was so rich. You can get so much replayability out of that game. It's very, very impressive. Uh, I just ultimately got rid of it anyway. One, because... It was a overly thick box, and I'm always trying... If, if you make a box that's twice as thick as a Ticket to Ride box, it's very unlikely I'm going to keep that game because I just don't have room for thick boxes on my shelves. I try to keep them slim. And plus, I had Vino, so I always thought, well, if I'm ever going to play... I mean, as good as Viticulture was, if I'm going to play a wine game, I should play Vinos instead. Uh, so it's, it ultimately didn't keep it, even though um, we both liked it quite a bit. Uh, you know, also got rid of it for reasons that were not its fault necessarily. Although, man, that box was just way too thick. Number 89, Splendor. Super mega popular gateway goods conversion dry Euro game. I am surprised how much love this game gets. Because Jen and I played and we thought, ah, yeah, that's okay. But there are so many games we could play that do the same kinds of things in so much more interesting and compelling ways. I mean... Splendor was fine, but it was just so bog standard and so abstract. I mean, it was practically an abstract game. I mean, there's this thing about you're trying to get mines to get more gems, to be able to get more mines, to get more gems, stuff like that, but none of it really uh, hewed to anything. You might as well just be trying to collect cats to get more litter boxes, to get more cats, to get more litter boxes. It would have been just as thematically appropriate. And, um, you know, so we just didn't really find ourselves engaged. And But I don't know, there must be something wrong with us because this game is so hugely popular, still hugely loved today, but it just fell flat for us. Maybe it's because we're only playing as a two-player game, but I've heard it works great as a two-player game. Honestly, just between you and me, I think it's those poker chips. The game comes with very nice art, very nice high-quality cards, but these gorgeous, thick, heavy clay, I guess? I don't know what the 
building material is, but these poker chips that are just so lovely to hold and to feel, and when it's not your turn to just kind of fiddle with them, they, I mean, they, they just has had this wonderful tactile um, property that just makes you want to hold them. And I mean, honestly, I mean, that was my favorite thing about the game. And I think if the game came with cardboard chits instead of those really cool poker chips, honestly, I don't know if it'd be quite as popular. I'm not saying it doesn't deserve it. I'm not saying it wasn't a smart design. But man, yeah, it just really fell flat for us. Moving on to number 88 is Istanbul, which is a very cool pickup and delivery game. We very much enjoyed it and ultimately got rid of it because I, now I'm in a huge, I'm in a very, very tiny minority here who feels that the game's balance was off a little bit only for two player for the way that the game was scaled and in a way that made it hard for, made it difficult for me to enjoy playing the game. Jen didn't care at all. I mean, we both thought it was fun. And the, the first expansion that came out was actually very, very good. Haven't tried the second expansion. Don't know if I will because the other thing, while the first expansion was very good, once again, it introduced stuff that I felt didn't work very well with two. And I mean, we did hold on to it until I eventually had a chance to play it with three players. And then I was like, oh my gosh, this game is so much better with just one more player that that was the nail in the coffin. I decided, okay, I just can't go back to this. I mean, it was fine. It worked well. And there's a lot of people out there who swear up and down that I am crazy nutballs and that it works well with two. So I was just take that with a grain of salt. It, regardless, it was a very smart game. And definitely, if I recall correctly, it won the Kenner Spiel this year. And that was definitely deserved because it's a smart, smart design. That's number 88. Number 87 is Goa. Another really lovely game. Very interesting, unusual take on auctions in this game where we are trying to Basically run, you know, in the era of colonization exploration, trying to bring back rare and exotic spices from the Far East to get them back to Goa. All through this uh, tech tree industry building thing combined with a, an auction snake, for lack of a better term. It's kind of hard to describe. You can watch my run through. Very, very good. Ultimately got rid of it because at the time it was kind of hard to get a hold of and I knew I could trade it away um, and, and um, you know get a good deal for it. And I was running short of uh, shelf space once again. And you know, it's, while it was a really solid game, I just realized, hey, if we we're going to sit down and play an auction game of you know, that weight and length, we'll probably just play Keyflower. And plus, it's another one where, where the auction works very well with two, but definitely, like Istanbul before it, I think, much, much better with more. And whenever I'd play it, I'd always think, man, I should really be playing this with more, ideally. And so ultimately it went. But it doesn't mean it's not a great game. I think it's very deserving to be in the top 100 games of all time because it's really, really sharp. Goa. Number 86. Hey, here's Steam, which I was just talking about. Actually, I think I might have that order wrong. Was it Age of Steam and then Railroad Tycoons and then Steam and then Railroad Tycoons? Honestly, at this point, I don't really remember. But everything I just said about Age of Steam applies to Steam. Um, and you can go watch my final thoughts on Railroad of the world to hear more about that. 85 is Cosmic Encounter, a game I will very likely never, ever play, no matter how much some people rave about how it's literally the greatest modern board game on the market. And maybe it is, but man, it is so not Jen's and my cup of tea. It is a game, first of all, that doesn't work for two, and I've heard repeatedly that if you don't have four or five players, don't even bother. Don't even try with three, which is something that we can sometimes do. But it's a game where everybody takes on a different alien race with a bunch of wild, wacky, you know, unpredictable and wildly asymmetric powers, and everybody is competing to, you know, come out on top in this race for 
um, winning cosmic encounters uh, where players are attacking each other and making temporary alliances and breaking alliances and all kinds of stuff. Just too fighty. It's never going to play it. Uh, number 85, cosmic encounter. Uh, nor am I ever going to play number 84, Forbidden Stars. Uh, see, is this... Honestly, I don't even know what this one is. This is some big 4X space exploration conquest game. So, I know so little about it, I have nothing to say. So, I'm just going to move on to number 83. Chaos of the Old World, which is a dudes on a map, you know, tactical war skirmish game, which are all a bunch of things that are you know, just in the no-fly zone for me and Jen. But then, the most interesting thing about this game, if I recall correctly, from designer... Um, um, Eric Lang, if I recall correctly. The board itself is arted up to look like your, your, the board you're playing on is a piece of flayed human skin stretched out over planks of wood, nailed in, and then the board is tattooed on this or, or something like that. It's really kind of grotesque. And that's appropriate because in this game, we don't just play army generals. We play these weird, grotesque, evil gods vying for dominance and just, you know, over the, 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 the realm of man. Really just incredibly dark. Um, well, I personally don't have a problem with that. There there is no way in a million years, even if Jen and I were the biggest dudes on the map fans in the universe, that she would touch us with a 10-foot pole because it just kind of revels in its evil, for lack of a better term. And that's cool. I dig it. But totally not a game that Jen and I would ever play. Um, Chaos in the Old World, 83. Then we move on to 82, Ticket to Ride Europe. I talked a bit about Ticket to Ride before, um, earlier in this, and I'm sure I talked last time too. Didn't keep it, but of all the Ticket to Ride I have experienced, Europe was the best one. And, you know, we enjoyed it, but we just moved on. Number 81, Combat Commander Europe. Some kind of war game. Dunno. Number 80, yay, Railways of the World. Does that, yes! Awesome. Railways of the World is rated higher than Steam or Age of Steam. So, Board Game Geek agrees with me. It's the best, y'all. And I agree, and you can watch my run-through to find out more. Then on to 79 is Star Realms, which I've never actually played the actual card game, but I have played it. It has a really nice, fast-playing digital app. You can play it on pretty much every platform there is. So I played it a few times that way, just against the AI, enough to realize that while it's a very nice polished, solid, quick-playing kind of intro to deck builders, it, it, to me, it really kind of felt like it sort of played itself. And I know that's not fair. I'm sure there's a lot of strategy and depth to it. And, um, but yeah, it just really failed to capture my attention, which is odd because the offshoot of it, Cthulhu Realms, Jen and I thought, worked very, very well because it added a lot more kind of player agency. We have, you have a lot more choices when you're playing Cthulhu Realms, but Star Realms is where it's at. This is such a huge, mega popular hit. It's had dozens of expansions, continues to sell. And I, I understand why. It's just, it's such an easy game to play. Anybody can sit down and just feel like they are accomplishing major epic moves because the game just goes out of its way to, to, to make it easy for players to do that. It's a sharp game. It's a nice game, but it you know, just didn't really, didn't really capture my imagination. Um, number 78 is Paths to Glory. Another war game. Know nothing about it. Don't care about it. Let's move on to number 77. The Gallerist from Vita Lasarda. I'm assuming Vinos must come higher on the list. I wonder if CO2 ever makes it on his list. Uh, or Kanban. I bet you those all rate higher. But Gallerist is a wonderful, deep Vita Lasarda game. You can check out my run-through of... Don't need to keep saying that. You can just do a search for... A Google search for Rado in the name of the game and find out if it's there. But... Really neat game. 
Jen, this might be Jen's favorite Vita Lasarda game. Mine is definitely CO2. Probably Kanban is second. Uh, Gower should probably be third. But I think for Jen, this was her favorite. Man, she just fell in love with it. Because, of course, Jen, my wife, is a glass artist. Um, and so she really has an affinity for the subject matter. Although in this game, you are taking on the role not of the artist, but of the gallery owner who discovers the artist and rockets them to fame and stardom while getting glory for yourself. So, Jen has a real vested interest in the uh, subject matter. And, you know, she's very happy making the glass art she makes. And, you know, she's very satisfied by it. And she, she loves making things for people and all that. But, you know, in her heart of hearts, she wishes she could get discovered someday by some gallerist. And, you know, just become some overnight, you know, Chihuly-type success. And, you know, so this is kind of a little bit of wish fulfillment for her, I think. So one of the reasons she really enjoys the gallerist, number 77. And on to number 76, Command and Colors Ancients, another war game, not interested. Moving on to number 75, Suburbia. This is an excellent game. I think it's in my top 20 or my top 30. Um, at the moment, it's my highest rated SimCity-esque board game, although... With more time, Quadropolis might ultimately surpass it, but it's such a wonderful game. So satisfying. I mean, to build up your little suburb and, and, you know, go for all kinds of combinations between the different buildings that you're drafting for while also paying attention to what your opponent builds because you can synergize with them. Really, really sharp stuff. Excellent. Um, you know, all the expansions are nice. Although, honestly, just the base game is so good, you don't need the expansions. It's just really, really sharp. Love it a lot. Number 75, Suburbia. And then number 74, Nations. This is in my top 10 of all time. And I, maybe it'll get kicked out someday, but man, it is, set, it is the perfect civilization game for us. I know Through the Ages is listed in like the top 15 of Board Game Geek twice because the third edition and the fourth edition, for some weird unknown reason, are listed as separate entities, which is just so wrong. Uh, but then it's wrong on top of that because everything Through the Ages does, for my money, Nations does so much better. You know, it plays in significantly less time. It has a lot more variability every time you play the game because of uh, the way setup works. You're not necessarily guaranteed to say the same cards every time in a, in a slightly different order, like Through the Ages. Uh, you still get that wonderful sense of escalation. And I love the take it has on warfare, which is not about players, you know, just being at each other's throats. But instead, it's kind of a more friendly competition. Works wonderfully in my top ten of all times, Nations. Then we move on to number 73, Legendary Encounters, an alien deck building game. And I've never played it, and I'd really like to. Uh, when I was at Liercon, I talked about that a little bit earlier in the podcast. This was definitely on my list of games I wanted to play, and I knew they had a copy, but I just couldn't find the time to do it. I, we've played Legendary. We liked Legendary, although it was a little bit on the long side. Ultimately, I got rid of Legendary, which is the same basic game as Legendary Encounters, um, but it's with Marvel superheroes. This is based on you know the uh, Ridley Scott, James Cameron, Xenomorph Aliens film franchise. And I guess it's just a phenomenal design, really captures the spirit and the feeling of those games, and that's the problem, or those movies, and that's the problem, because Jen hates those movies, hates everything about them, and so she'll never play it with me. So I don't know if I'll ever, I, I thought Portugal would be my big shot, and I missed it. So someday I'll play number 73, Legendary Encounters, and see how it improves on the Legendary formula. Then we go on to number 72, Kemet. Don't like it. Dudes on map. Although, ironically, I have done a run-through for it, so you can find out more about why we didn't like it. But really sharp game. I think that's totally reasonable. It's on the top 100. Number 71, Aura et Labora, um, or, uh, which, which is a, a great Uwe Rosenberg game. I've done a run-through for it. And it's really interesting. 
You know, for the longest time, I was confident I would never get rid of that game. But recently, this year, when I was trying to make room, or late last year, I was trying to make room for all the games I knew I was going to pick up at Essen. Or no, no, no. No, that's not true. No, I knew I was going to keep it anyway. It's all in the bubble now because I recently discovered Colonists. And I don't know that I would ever play Aura at Labora over Colonists. Even though they're very, very different game in terms of gameplay. They're, these are both um, games of, you know, getting resources and converting to other resources and building bigger and bigger and bigger. And call, I just like Colonists so much more. But, you know, Or at Labora is so wonderful. If they would just release an expansion for Or at Labora that introduced different buildings so it wasn't the same buildings you're building every single game. Because everything else about that game is so stellar. Um, so, but like I said, it's on the bubble for me these days, which is amazing. If you told me two years ago it might be on the bubble for me, I would have said, never! And now I'm saying, well, never say never. Number 70 is Stone Age, which is a... Uh, a gateway game that we do keep around. Not that I think we would ever play base Stone Age, because again, we played that enough. Don't need to keep playing it. Don't need it for its gateway tendency or gateway properties. But as a gateway plus, when you add the style is the goal expansion, it becomes interesting enough for us to enjoy playing. I know a lot of people really hate the style is the goal expansion, but Jen, I thought it was added a lot and made the game a lot richer, a lot more interesting. So, but that's just us. We might even be in the minority on that, but that's number 70, Stone Age. Then we move on to number 69, Alchemist. Wow, what a very, very cool game. So far out. Although, maybe a bit bigger and heavier than we normally like. I mean, we, we played it a few times now, and every time we play it, you know, we both really enjoy it. But man, it, it, I, my understanding is if you play that game enough, you'll get to where you kind of master the intricacies of how to do the deduction. And, you know, the whole game is driven by an app as you're trying to combine different alchemical or, uh, d- different components, different ingredients to try to determine their alchemical composition so that you can become the greatest alchemist in the world while publishing papers and, for, um, you know, that can go up for, um, you know, review by other players who might, you know, find fault with it. it Lots of really brilliant things. But every time we play it, we're like, oh my gosh, this game is destroying our brains. I just need to play it a few more times. And actually, uh, an expansion for it did come out at Essen last year. Haven't looked at it yet. Should definitely give it a go. Um, we'll see what the voters say for number 69, if we're going to be covering it soon, Alchemist. Then number 68 is Arcadia Quest. Um, oh man, I love the look of this. It's a sweet-looking, cute cartoony, like what's it called, the chibi anime style with the little uh, cartoon characters with really oversized heads. And they just run around and attack each other and fight each other. And oh my gosh, it has such wonderful components. I'm sure we'd love the world, but it's just a, a, just a dice fest of running around, hitting each other over the head. Blech. It's uh, very well loved. I'm sure it deserves its spot, but not for me and Jen. Then we move on to number 67, Game of Thrones, the board game. And this might strike some people as kind of surprising. I have actually played this. Even though, man, it uh, goes against everything I like about board games. It's crazy long. It's crazy complex. It's got a lot of special case of Meritrash, Persnickety rules. It is just ultimate epic. Uh, not direct warfare, but you know, it's a high-conflict cutthroat game. And it's uh, yeah, basically, when you play it, three or four hours of just backstabbing and temporary alliances and all kinds of stuff... I did play it once because my coworkers were getting together playing it, and I love Game of Thrones, so I figured, okay, I will give it a try. And about an hour in, 
I hated life so much. I so wanted to die. I so wanted somebody to wipe me out. Um, and then three hours later, I mean, it was even worse. Oh, I, uh, oh, I'm having flashbacks right now. I'm not saying it's a terrible game, but man, it was a terrible experience for me. The number 67 Game of Thrones. Let's uh, cleanse our palates a bit with number 66 in my top 10 games of all times is Twa. Twa, or Troya, as some people might pronounce it, is such a brilliant, brilliant dice. I was going to say dice worker placement game, but it's not quite. It's really quite unlike anything else on the market. So unique, so fresh, so wonderful. Um, a dice action selection game? I, I don't know what you'd call it, but man, it's great. The, the expansion for it is great. I understand it's going to be getting reprinted soon, or if it already has. I hope so, because everybody should get a chance to play this. Like I said, it's in my top 10 of all time. I love Twa so much. And then on to number 65, Mombasa. Mombasa, 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 from design to Alex Fister. Very cool, neat, uh, economic simulation of the subjugation of Africa by European colonial powers. I know um, a lot of people were really pissed at this game because it seemed to take a very... Oh, I mean, it, it basically, it completely ignored the suffering of the indigenous people um, you know, because by putting players in the role of the subjugators. Um, you know, and, and not having them worry about the suffering they're causing, just focusing on the bottom line, trying to get those diamonds, trying to, you know, I mean, so many different ways you can score points in this very, very clever, deep game with some really cool, interesting, innovative guard play. Now, we got rid of it, not because of the subject matter, but because we just felt it didn't work as well with two as it, as it would with others. So it wasn't a keeper for us. But in all honesty, anytime anybody says that, you know, they're kind of disgusted by it, I don't get that because I think the developers treated the subject matter with respect. I mean, they, they, they devoted a portion of the rule book to talking about the harsh reality. You know, they admit, look, the game doesn't cover that because we're not telling that side of the story. We're telling the, the conqueror side as opposed to the conquered side. Um, but here is some suggested reading. If you enjoy the game, uh, we suggest you read it so you have a broader understanding. I think that's phenomenal. I think Mombasa... By you know not kind of ramming it down your th the player's throat about you know the kind of the terrible injustice the you know man's inhumanity to man that they are responsible for when they're playing the game, well that means it makes the game more approachable, easier to play, easier to get into, and then you know what for every hundred people who play that game, if one person says you know, I really like this game so much I'm going to read this book they talk about, um, and then they come face to face with the realities that maybe they were previously unaware of, and then they go back and play Mombasa again, I think everything changes for them. I think um, you know, it's, a, you know, it's, a, it's a Trojan horse of a game that can kind of sneak in and make you more aware of the world. Um, you know, and it's most important, I think, I, I've talked about this in the past with Endeavor. I don't remember if Endeavor was in the top 50 or not. Maybe it's going to come up soon. I respect a game that... Let you walk a mile in um, the shoes of somebody else so that we don't, I mean, you know, again, the, all the untold hardship that Europe has caused in the African continent that still ripples down through time today and destroys so many, you know, millions of lives because of these choices that were made. It's not like these, um, you know, people back hundreds of years ago were evil monsters. They were just tr trying to be smart businessmen. And I think it's good to show how a, a normal person can 
you know, uh, you know, through their actions, create such untold suffering. Um, so I think it's a good thing that Mombasa... I mean, I, I, I would be fine. I think, heck, I would, I would respect the heck out of the game if they actually showed, you know, directly through gameplay mechanisms, the, you know, the, the harsh, the pain that the player's actions cause. But if they did, I don't think as many players would play it. And I think there would be less opportunity for players to learn about the, this history that is, you know, largely unknown to them. So, like I said, I think Mombasa does work as, you know, kind of a spoonful of sugar that maybe will expose them to the medicine down the line. Anyway, that's my feeling on it. But anyway, let's, let's get off of a kind of a bummer, the darker, uh, category of gaming and talk about some fun light stuff like the resistance avalon at number 64 that must mean the resistance itself is higher and i haven't played avalon although here's the thing i got to play resistance i would have so much rather played resistance avalon just because i'm so much more interested in the subject matter of you know um you know working in a semi-cooperative way trying to figure out who the traitor is amongst us uh in you know arthurian legend arthurian lore rather than in some kind of um, you know, Blade Runner-esque dystopian future, which is what the Resistance is set in. But it's interesting. When I did play the Resistance, when I was with the Dice Tower guys in Florida, I discovered not really my thing. I, I, I understood it, but I just didn't find myself enjoying it. And I thought I would because I really do... You know, when I, uh, in the past, when I played games that aren't negotiation games, I do still like to not negotiate. I... I like to work the metagame. I like to work the table as much as I work, you know, work the players as much as I work the game when I play. So I would have thought this would have been a no-brainer, but it just didn't work for me for some reason. I'm not quite sure why. Uh, maybe I should try it again someday. Maybe Avalon would have pulled me in more because I would have had more affinity and more excitement for the subject matter itself. But let's move on to number 63. Hey, it's another war game, War of the Ring, the first edition. Because, of course, War of the Ring, the second edition, is further up. I'm not going to repeat my um, complaint about the ridiculousness of one game having multiple entries on this list. It just drives me nuts. But you know what? It is what it is. Nothing to be done. Still, not a subject matter that interests me. But I think it's just unfair. There's some game that's sitting at 101 that deserves to be in the top 100 because War of the Ring 1st Edition and 2nd Edition should be collapsed into one entry, uh, in my two cents. Although, who am I to talk because I've never played them. Anyway, though, let's move on to number 62, Crokinole, which is a huge... I mean, what, what, they list the date on this as 1876. I wonder how accurate that is. This is a disc-flicking game where everybody's just trying to flick their discs into a little hole in the center of the board, trying to knock each other out, avoid pegs. Couldn't be simpler. Uh, you know, a timeless classic of a game. And Jen and I did get to play it once years ago, and we thought, yeah, this is pretty neat. Still, if I were going to play a disc-flicking game, I think I'd play Catacombs. Because, um, again, this is just a pure abstract, and it just doesn't pull us in as, as much as we might like. Moving on to 61, Descent, Journeys in the Dark, 2nd Edition. I have tried that. I really wanted to love it, but we didn't love it, so we just went back to Catacombs. Which, um, I'm sorry, not Catacombs, Claustrophobia. Which, as far as we're concerned, does everything Descent does about ten times better. And is designed from the ground up for two players. So, um, but I talk at more length why it didn't work for me and Jen in the run-through I did. Let's move on to number 60, Castles of Man King Ludwig. I am really surprised this rate's higher than Suburbia. Uh, because, I mean, I like Castles of Mad King Ludwig, but I love Suburbia. And, I mean, I do think Suburbia is the better game. Uh, not to say that Castle of Mad King Ludwig isn't lovely. It's great. Um, it's very, very sharp. And 
I don't know, maybe it is the better game. It's just not the better game for me in Gen because the the tile drafting in this game, it um it really slows the game down. It's one of those ones where one player is responsible for determining the stated value of everything that we could be drafting for in a given turn. And so then everybody else, those are the prices we all have to and that, uh, to choose from when we're trying to buy new stuff to up, to build up our castles. And man, that that just drags the game to a halt. It's very, very difficult for us to get to the table and enjoy it as much as we do Suburbia. Um, I just, I would have so much rather, if this game did the drafting, the tile drafting in the same way Suburbia does, I would rate it higher than Suburbia. But as it is for us, we rate, actually, that's not fair. For me, I think Jen would rate Castles, uh, Mackie higher than Suburbia too, just because there's a sense of whimsy to the game. The stuff you're building is just so much more fun. Um, than just you know SimCity esque suburban stuff. Uh, so yeah, I, I think I think it's a great game. Totally deserves to be on the list. I just personally would put, and I do put, I rank uh, Suburbia higher, just because it's a cleaner, smoother playing game for us. Moving on to number fifty nine, Pandemic, which I is my number one rated game of all time. Although Pandemic wouldn't be a number one rated game if it wasn't for the sheer volume of wonderful expansion content. Uh, it was in my top 10. It's always been in my top 10. But it is always pushed up higher and higher and higher due to all the expansions that are available. And I include Pandemic Legacy in that. Um, and it's interesting. Pandemic Legacy is number one. But Pandemic itself is number 59. Hmm. I'm sure there are a lot of people who would pontificate at great length about... Well, any number of things they would want to take away from that in terms of uh, the validity of the Board Game Geek rankings and all that. All I know is I love Pandemic. I would put it higher. I think it should be higher um, is my main thing. Um, 58, number 58 is Arkham Horror the Card Game. I finally got that just the other day. It showed up in the mail and we did not get a chance to get it to the table before Jen left. But I really do want to get it run through because people have been clamoring for me to run through this for quite a while. I'm cautiously optimistic because we very much enjoy Lord of the Rings, the card game, which is kind of the precursor to this, although the gameplay in this is very, very different. Plus, I mean, this is from, I think it's from Nate French, who also designed Space Alert, or Space Hulk Death Angel, which I absolutely love as well. Or no, maybe Corey Kanichia, I'm not sure, I don't remember. I'm cautiously optimistic. We probably aren't going to enjoy it, but I hope we do. But I might not get a chance to get to the table until Jen gets back, which is, what, four weeks from now? Ah, I'm looking at it right now on the shelf. It haunts me. It mocks me. I guess I could play it solo. Maybe I should try that. We'll see. Uh, but anyway, uh, by the way, um, number 58 with a bullet just came out of nowhere. That's a big, big meteoric climb. So it must be good, right? I don't know. 57 Russian Railroads. Man, what a sweet, sweet game. I'm surprised it's this high, though, because I know a lot of people complain that it has kind of limited shelf life, that you know, if you play it enough times, it kind of outwears its welcome. And then, so I guess those people would argue, see, once again, board game geek ratings are invalid because people only play a game a time or two, and then they rate it. Um, and you get, with, you get anomalies like this for, but I don't know. It's in my top 50 as well. So it's in the top 60 on board game geek. I think it's a great game. And if you're worried about that, then just get the expansion. The uh, Russian Railroads, German Railroads expansion, which adds so much replayability, completely obliterates any complaints anybody could have of the game becoming static. And heck, American Railroads expansion came out for it that adds a stock market, I guess. I can't wait to try that, too. We really like Russian Railroads very, very much. Um, number 56 is Trajan, which is in Jen's top 10s in my top 20. 
My second favorite Steffenfeld game of all time. Absolutely phenomenal design. One of his best. Unfortunately, I'd say watch my run-through, but it's one of the first ones I did, so it's it's kind of hard to watch. But still, hopefully it'll give you a good idea. Heck, some people say my early stuff is better than what I do now, so judge for yourself. But man, such a brilliant design. Such an intricate, perfect puzzle. Absolutely love Trajan. Trajan. No, Trajan. Trajan, that's right. Um, number 55 is Tigers and Euphrates. And now this is interesting. When I did the number 50 to the number 1, I already talked about Tigers and Euphrates because just a few months ago, T&E was at number 50 on the list, and it has now fallen to number 54. So that's interesting. Let's move on. Number 50, uh, I'm sorry, no, fallen five spaces, number 55. Number 54, Sherlock Holmes, Consulting Detective. Was that, um, no, it was not. Uh, so, all right, uh, let's talk about Sherlock Holmes, Consulting Detective. Really, really neat. It's actually interesting. The first time Jen and I ever tried to play it, she hated it. Um, but then we played it as, uh, as in a group setting, and she liked it. Although what she didn't like was she was the one responsible for keeping the notes. This is a game where you can play with as big a group as you want, almost within within reason, I suppose. Where um, it's kind of a it's kind of like a choose your own adventure, but you have total freedom. It's a choose your own adventure where the game the book doesn't tell you. Um, what page to go to. You pick the page to go to. And that sounds funky, and it is, but it's absolutely brilliant. But uh, it wasn't until I finally did a run-through of it, that, you know, we played it again, that Jen finally got into the groove. And so we hold on to our copy. And I hope someday to get to play through all the missions that have come in it, because we've only played a few of them. It's a really, really neat game. Jen loves Sherlock Holmes. So that's number 54. And now number 53, Dominion. Which, hey, this has fallen because before, Dominion was at number 48. Mm, so it has fallen. I've already talked about it. Don't need to talk about it anymore. Number 52 is Fields of Arla. That has fallen. It was number 45, 49 when I did this before. Number 51 is Great Western... Ooh. 51 is Great Western Trail. It was not on this list at all two months ago. So that is a big, big climb overnight. Was it? Let me check that. Great. Yeah. Yep, yep. So it um, it is working its way up, and I bet it's not done. I bet um, in the coming months, it is going to climb higher and higher. I wouldn't be surprised if it makes it into the 30s, even the 20s. I don't know if it's going to make it into the teens, but it's a brilliant game. It was my number 11 of the year from Alexander Pfister. Great, great game. Love the theme of you know a deep, heavy, meaty Euro, all about driving cattle. Um, not, not the normal subject matter. Really cool mix of deck building and um, and uh, a, a, a cleverly hidden rondel gameplay. Really, really sharp. Number 51, Great Western Trail. And then, hey, number 50 is Battlestar Galactica, which a few months ago was number 46, I think. So that means some new stuff is pushed in. Let's soldier on and see what's pushed in. Number 49 is now A Feast for Odin. It was not on the list before. Ste- uh, not Steffenfeld. Um, uh, Uwe Rosenberg's big, big, heavy Euro of the Year. I'm planning on getting a run-through of it done this month, folks. Jen and I have played it. I've got stuff to say. Don't want to spoil it now. That'll be coming soon. And then number 48 is X-Wing. That was um, still in... the uh, Right. So X-Wing is 48. Before, it was 44. Dominion Intrigue, uh, Lords of Waterdeep, Viticulture, Five Tribes, El Grande, Race for the Galaxy. All this stuff was here before. Let's keep going. Roll for the Galaxy, Dominant Species, Patchwork, Twilight Imperium, Elder Tor, Concordia, Voyages of Marco Polo. Yeah, I talked about all this a few months ago. And, and this kind of feels like it's in the right... The, the order hasn't really changed amongst these. Kalis, Dead of Winter, Seven Wonders, Keyflower, Food Chain Magnet, Orleo. Ooh, coming in at 
Tot at number 28, Mechs versus Minions. I got no problem with that. It was in my top 10 of the year. Great, great game. Wonderful, cooperative. I was about to say real-time, but it's not. Oh, a small portion of it's real-time, but it, uh, a cooperative programming mech versus Minions game. Really, really neat. Love it a lot. Is that the one that pushed everything down? You got Mansion to Madness, Zolkins, uh, Time Stories, Brass, Lahav. Excuse me for a second. <coughs> Codenames, Robinson Crusoe, Android Netrunner, Terraforming. Ooh, Terraforming Mars. Wow. I think this might be the hottest game of 2016, debuting just after a couple of months at number 19 on the all-time list. Wait a minute, or was it on the list before? No, 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 maybe it was. Let me look. Let me look. What did I talk about a few months ago? No, 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 it was on the list before, but it has climbed significantly. Before, it was at number, it looks like 26, and just in a couple of months, it's moved up to number 19. So what else? Uh, Blood Ray, uh, so Eclipse, Power Grid, Star Wars Imperial Assault, Blood Rage, War of the Rings 2nd Edition, Agricola, Puerto Rico, Castle of Burgundy, Caverna, Seven Wonders Duel. Yeah, I think nothing else has changed. So I guess it's just some stuff has shifted around. Uh, Scythe, Star Wars Rebellion, those are there were before. Yeah, that was it. Okay. Hey, folks, I have now done the top 100 of Board Game Geek. Oh, please don't ask me to do this again. This is hard. And, you know, the farther we go, it's just going to... I don't know. I don't know why some would find this interesting because I really feel like I spent half my time just saying, "Hey, go watch my run through," or "I don't know anything about this game." And I expect the percentage of that kind of response is only going to increase as we get um, further away from the board game geeks' best of the best. But I don't know if somebody asked me. Guess I'll do it. I don't know. But that's it, folks. Um, ah, man. Ah, my throat is dry as the Sahara. I need a cough, a throat lozenge, or something. I'll be back soon. Okay, folks, so time to revisit top tens, and I've just looked, and I've only got one. I thought I would actually have a few more top tens built up that I need to catch up on, but there's just the one, although I think it's going to be a, it's a particularly cool one, because a couple months ago, I did my top, not, not my top ten games, but my first ten games, period, that uh, you know, Jen and I encountered on our road to our current state of board game geekdom. And uh, if you watch that original top 10, you know those first few months were pretty rocky. Uh, I had more swings and misses uh, trying to figure out the uh, early games. After my initial success, the first game we ever tried, Pandemic, changed our lives. Things weren't going very well, but uh, th things got better. And now... I'm going to continue. Let's see. We left when we last we left our heroes. We uh, just finished February, was it 2010, right? And I had just gotten my tenth game was Roll Through the Ages, and that was pretty nice. But then we go on into March, and it looks like from the research I did, I only picked up four games, uh, four new games in the month of March, and this was still in that period where I was doing most of my buying of games used online in England from other places because I hadn't really escalated to trying to do... Well, there were no friendly local game stores where I lived, and I hadn't quite gotten to doing online orders through retailers. I mean, ultimately, I really fell in love with Board Game Guru in, in the UK, and there's a few, few other places that are quite nice as well, but that's way off in the future. At this point, I'm still just using Board Game Geek and buying used games from folks, and the four games I got in March were starting with Shadows Over Camelot. I really wanted to try this because at this point, I was still looking for more cooperative games uh, for Jen and I to enjoy. 
And I knew this one was a risk because officially it's not even a two-player game. It's a three-player minimum. But some people on Board Game Geek said, no, 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 we've played it with two and we've really enjoyed it. So I figured, okay, let's give it a try. And that's the last time I trusted some random person on Board Game Geek because, yeah, it's a terrible two-player game. It does not work very well at all. Or, um, yeah, so, uh, you know, didn't stick around too terribly long. I got rid of it in a subsequent month. Uh, actually, that, oh, that's coming up. We'll talk more about subsequent months soon. But yeah, Shadows Over Camelot, liked the idea of it, but it was a terrible two-player experience. And that really should be no surprise. What else did we get in March? We picked up Castle Panic. Uh, again, another cooperative game, trying to replicate that success of Pandemic. Uh, so let's go with Castle Panic. And we actually played this several times that month. I remember you know, playing it and thinking, wow, that was really neat. But man, that was really kind of easy. Uh, it doesn't seem very challenging. And you know, we'd go back and we'd try it again because there were several things you could do to try to increase the difficulty. And we kept increasing the difficulty, increasing the difficulty, and we just never lost. Um, and it turns out, I realize now after the fact, the interesting thing about Castle Panic is it's officially a semi-cooperative game. Nobody plays it this way, but there is supposed to be one winner. It's a, you know, a game where we're trying to protect a tower in the, or I guess a castle in the middle of the board from onslaughts of enemies, and we're working cooperatively, and we trade cards. If um, I've got the cards you need, you got the cards I need, we can swap cards to fight them off most efficiently. But the interesting thing about this game is, what you're supposed to do is, well, you want to work with everybody else, because if people don't work together, we all die, but you want to get those kills for yourself because they're worth points at the end of the game. And we didn't play that way. We completely ignored that. And we found the game to be a cakewalk, no matter what. We played it at the absolute highest difficulty level you could. It was still just a cakewalk. And I realize now, I didn't quite realize at the time because I was still new, well, it's because we don't care about the score. If we were playing a little bit selfishly and not always going for the optimal trade, I expect that game would work a little bit better. But we weren't particularly interested in it. So that was our first uh, attempt at a... At a uh, well, I mean, I guess Shadows of Camelot, that's, that's a trader-based game. But of course, you know, um, in a two-player game, the trade again. There is no two-player Shadows or Camelot. Put that behind us. But Castle Panic that was another miss. It was another miss. But we had two mega hits, uh, and you know the things were a bit rocky. You know, here I'm coming into March. I'm still. Not doing very well picking games, but the next two that ended out March were phenomenal. First one I should mention was Dominion. I looked it up. I bought it online, used from a board game geek on oneboardgamegeek.com. I got it for 15 pounds. And um, I still have our original 15 pound used copy of Dominion all these years later. Picked up every single expansion since then. Uh, just got the uh, new like upgrade packages. Those just showed up just the other day. Can't wait to uh, open them and try and see what's new in there. We both, Jen and I, love Dominion. It's her top 10, it's in my top 20. For my money, it's still the best deck builder on the market. Nobody has eclipsed it, no matter how hard they try. It's amazing, and it blew us away. And um, that, plus the other game I picked up in March that was a big success for us, Agricola. Which, it's for the longest time, it was my number one game, period. Right now, I think it's my number two or my number three. I don't remember if Shadowrun Crossfires pushed it to the number three spot, or if it's still at number two. I mean, But it's... Still, I mean, heck, Jen and I, we just played this on her birthday uh, last month. And once again, fell in love 
just uh, every time you play, you're just going to get such a radically different experience. It's just, and there's so many cards for it now. But the, so I mentioned, you know, these were two games. Um, actually, I couldn't quite figure out where I picked up Agricola. I don't, I couldn't find a record for it, but I know I picked it up because next month we picked up the expansion. You know, um, and I, I got that. Uh, well, we'll come back to that in a second. So at some point, I picked it up in March, and these two games more than anything else convinced us that you know what. We don't have to keep chasing co-op. We can have fun playing competitive games. We'd gotten some previous competitive games and, you know, had some limited success, but, uh, you know, Citadels and, and Plunder, you know, we were quickly learning that, well, yeah, this competition thing doesn't work for us. We don't really like. Well, actually, no, it was mostly me. I don't like attacking her. At this point, Jen was still pretty happy to attack me. <laughs> she didn't mind, but, you know, I was finding, yeah, I just don't know. Am I going to run out of cooperative games? Are we going to be able to have fun playing games? Because it seems like everything is competitive and I don't want to attack Jen. Uh, but then Dominion and Agricola came into our lives. And after that, everything changed because, you know, the floodgates were open. Okay, well, heck, we can try anything. It doesn't have to be cooperative because there are so many games. If these two games exist where we can have a wonderful competitive experience that doesn't require us to beat each other's throats, oh my gosh, let's see what else we can find. And, you know, I mean, these two games are still, you know, two of the best we've ever played. Now, of course, you know, I guess there's always a bit of you know, rose-colored glasses nostalgia. If I played Dominion today for the first time, would I rank it so highly? The same for Agricola? I think so, because both these games are so amazing. But, you know, who knows? But anyway, that was a very... Those two games back-to-back. And again, I was surprised. When I went back and looked up, I got Dominion. It was another life-changing game for 15 pounds. Thank you, uh, Board Game Geek user who sold that to me because you didn't quite... Well, they'd probably played it so much to death that they... Um, anyway, so... Here's the next step. Going into April, in my evolution as a board gamer. Now, at this point, I was still working full-time in the video game industry. And as such, I made regular trips to the United States. Probably every two or three months, I had to make a trip to go talk to publishers, to go talk to license holders. Uh, you know, it, was, it was a pretty common thing at that point in my career. And uh, this is when I realized, because again, living in Europe... Games are expensive. And that's, that's, I mean, Americans have no idea how great they've got it. I mean, in so many ways, and certainly board games are one of them, things are so cheap, so affordable. Even now that the dollar is getting stronger or, you know, against everything else, you know, because the euro's weakening and all that, uh, it's still, things are so ridiculously cheap in the U.S. And this is why, you know, I was buying used for the most part in Europe, because I just, I, I, I mean, don't get me wrong. I was a very successful video game designer. I could afford to pay full price in Europe, but my spin-thrift nature would not allow me. I just wasn't comfortable knowing that, man, if I could just get to America and pick up these games, they'd be 30 or 40% cheaper. Buying them new. So I just wasn't comfortable paying such exorbitant, huge high prices in Europe. And that's when I realized, hey, you know what? I'm about to make another trip. I think... What was I doing? I, if I remember, I was Vegas. I think I had to go to Vegas for a convention. Was it the Dice Convention? Um, I don't remember exactly, but I'm pretty sure it was Vegas. Or maybe this was a later one. But I made a trip. No, no, no. This was going back to the. This was going back to L.A. Uh, so I was going to talk to publishers. This trip, and what I did before I left. 
because I was only going to be in the States for a couple of days. Uh, I knew what my hotel was. It had already been booked. And so I went online to, I don't remember which, I mean, I, I've got the receipts in my Hotmail account. I could go dig them up. But I went to several different retailers and I ordered a ton of new games. And I went with a completely empty backpack and a completely empty suitcase and a completely empty carry-on suitcase. And, you know, I pretty much only wore the clothes on my back and I ordered all these games, a big list of them, because I was going to carry them all back and, you know, and again, get them basically for half price. No shipping, etc., etc. Um, and what did I get? What's this list? Let me see. Where is it? It's just this huge list. Um, Thebes, Dungeon Lords, uh, Thurn and Taxis, Runebound 2nd Edition, Carson City, Catacombs, Space Alert, Galaxy Trucker, Tobago, Arabian Nights, Cyclades, Fjords, Ghost Stories, Two de Mayo, Under the Shadow of the Dragon, Arkham Horror, Mr. Jack, Small Worlds, and uh, Agricola, um, Farmers of the Moor. Huge thing. All of that stuff just barely fit. And, you know, so like I said, some of this was from online retailers. Some of this I just bought at local game stores. I, me- I still remember this trip, renting a car and just driving around to all these big, massive game stores in Los Angeles. There was nothing like this in, in England at the time. I mean, there were a couple of small game stores in London. I hadn't really gotten to those yet, uh, little holes in the wall. But, I mean, these big, massive things. Because, of course, everything in America is bigger and everything in America is cheaper. So I was buying games at local stores. I had ordered some online to have them mailed to my hotel. I actually bought, I, I think that, if I remember it, yeah. Um, oh, um, yeah, yeah. So I, mean, I, th- I think I actually got some used because I, I did that from some used people and had them send to my hotel and I brought them all home and it was ridiculous. This was the floodgates opening. And I continued to do this on almost every single trip I made to the States for the next couple of years. I, you know, I would go with empty suitcases and come back bringing a, just a, you know, a ridiculous bounty of games all at once because it was just so much cheaper. Uh, let's actually talk about those games, though, and how they worked out. Thebes, we still own it. Neat, neat little game. In all honesty, at this point, I think Thebes, the card game, so eclipses Thebes, the board game. Just because as much as we like Thebes, it's... It's just longer than it should be. If that game were shorter, but it, it's still good. It's it's so charming to reach into the bag and you know try to be an archaeologist and you know you're you're trying to go to ancient archaeological dig sites and hopefully find rare relics and you do that by digging into a bag and you pull out chits and they either say oh look cool really awesome amulet or dirt. It's neat. We enjoy it. Enjoy it enough to keep it all these years later, which is actually saying something because it's a big box. I'm looking at it right now. But um, you know, maybe someday, because I can't imagine playing it these days now that we've got the card game. But again, nostalgia kicks in. We'll see. Uh, Dungeon Lords. Really wanted to like this. Brought it back. And um, you know, thought it was really, really neat. I think this is our first instance of running into something we ultimately deemed... Totally unacceptable. The two-player rules where, hey, to turn this game into a two-player game, let's just have you control two characters. That's not quite what happens in Dungeon Lords. It's it's a little bit more clever than that, but it, we didn't enjoy it. I mean, we we saw, boy, this works so much better if we could just play it as a two-player game and we didn't have the uh, the extra overhead of you know controlling these dummy players. Um, 
So, I mean, ultimately we didn't keep it, but you know, ultimately that Dungeon Lord led to Dungeon Pets years later, and man, we still Dungeon Pets is in my top ten, and Jen's might be her number two, might be even her number one, I think. But anyway, so Dungeon Lords was kind of a miss. Uh, Turn and Taxis like that eventually got rid of Ticket to Ride, but we've kept Turn and Taxis as a better game. Like it. Neat. Actually, I have the expansions for it as well. Although, unfortunately, I don't have it here in Malta. When we moved to Malta a few years ago, we just thought we were going to be here for a year. So, we actually left probably 20 or 30 games in my attic, or in our attic in England, because we're renting the house we own in England, and we still are to this day. And Turn and Taxes is one, because I figured, okay, well, you know what? I don't need to play this for the next year. We'll be back in a year. That's fine. And now, I'm like, ah! I would really like to play it again, but, you know, it's, it's denied us. But anyway, uh, Runebound 2nd Edition, that turned out to be a very big hit. And um, I don't have it... Well, <sighs> I don't have it anymore because I was excited about Runebound 3rd Edition. I didn't think they could mess it up. And I figured it would just be nothing but improvement. So I got rid of all my Runebound 2nd Edition stuff, which started with this copy of Runebound I picked up on this trip. And now I regret it because, you know what, Runebound 3rd Edition is not as good as 2nd Edition. But that was a, that was a hit. We both enjoyed that. That was our first big, really epic fantasy adventure game that worked really, really well. Uh, let's see, what else? Oh, Carson City. Still own that to this day. Fantastic, neat worker placement game. It's pretty mean, but this was the one, this was the game that showed us that, hey, you know what? Even if a game has meanness, it's okay if the game is rich and deep enough that we can just choose to ignore the meanness. Although it's interesting. Well, no, yeah, yeah, uh, you know, because you can play Carson City in a peaceful way. Some games out there, you know, I mean, there's a lot of people who say, hey, um, I don't understand why you trade that game. Yes, it has mean elements, but you can just ignore those mean elements. But as often as not, in a lot of games where that's the case, like, say, uh, last year's Terraforming Mars, if you ignore the mean elements, you're actively hurting yourself because you're playing suboptimally. Carson City was a game I found where we didn't. We didn't have to feel like we were being bad players we, if we weren't, trying to steal from each other all the time, even though we could. And so that was a really important game for us in, you know, this is all learning. We're taking baby steps. We're learning what works for us, what doesn't. And Carson City worked for us, and we still have it to this day. Let's see, where was that list? Oh, Catacombs. This was the first printing of Catacombs, and we really liked it. I mean, this is obviously a very in-your-face, head-to-head. One player is the dungeon master flicking monster discs, and the other player is the heroes flicking hero discs as as they explore a dungeon. And uh, we liked it because it was so much fun to flick. We ultimately got rid of it, though, because our house in England, we played on this really tiny little table, this very round wooden table that we'd brought with us from America uh, that was not well-suited for games that required a lot of table space. And Catacombs was even worse because, you know, you have to get up and you have to be able to walk around and approach the board from all different angles and whatnot. So ultimately, I got rid of that game just because... We felt like we couldn't play it in our very limited space because we have a, a tiny little house in England, a, a full of tiny little rooms that fit a, barely fit a tiny little table. Um, now I live in Malta where we have this big open air flat with a really big comfortable table, and so I was so happy that event, you know, was it last year? Catacombs got the big lavish deluxe reprint because I was sad to get rid of it. But you know, that was a game where we. Uh, is that our first game that I got rid of, not for gameplay reasons, but only because of you know non-gameplay reasons, you know restrictions in our real life, like shelf space or whatever? I think it might be. Interestingly, let's see where did that list go. Oh, Space Alert. 
Uh, here, I don't know if it was Space Alert first or Dungeon Lords first, but here's two games back to back where, man, we really like this game. It's so cool, but man, we think it's terrible as a two player game. Or, you know, or sorry, I'm not saying it's a terrible two player game, but we couldn't enjoy it as a two player game because their solution for making it a two player game was, hey, just have two players each control two characters. And Space Alert, man, that was such a hit and a miss. I still, to this day, would love to play it as a full four-player game sometime. But it was not to be. But Galaxy Trucker, you can see there's like this spate of CGE games, um, you know, a lot of Shavadal games. Galaxy Trucker turned out to be a big hit. We really loved that. Still own it, have gotten every expansion since then, so that was a success. Tobago, man, I am really glad I got that at the time. It was still fairly new because, of course, now it's way out of print and very, very difficult to get, particularly in the States. You can still kind of pick it up in Europe because there were these... About, I mean, but those versions aren't as nice because they don't have the really cool components. One of Jen's favorite games, I like it quite a bit. Still have it. That was a success. Tales of Arabian Nights. This is one that was not a success. We really liked the storybook element that, you know, you move around this beautiful, gorgeous map. And, uh, you know, when you go someplace, you, you flip the book to a certain page, read a certain paragraph, one player reads it to the other, and then the other player has to make choices. Man, we both fell in love with that. But we thought the game of Arabian Nights itself, I mean, it's not even a game. It's just a very long, you know, two plus hour long random story snippets that we read to each other. So we wanted to love it, love the idea, but man, for us, the execution was just very poor. Ultimately, very happily, in future years, uh, Agents of Smirsh and Above and Below, and there's been other games that do it so much better because Arabian Nights was a, another swing and a miss. What is that? How, how am I doing so far on this list? Uh, let's see. Thebes, a hit. Lord, Dungeon Lords, miss. Thurn and Taxi, hit. Runebound, hit. Carson City, hit. Catacombs, hit, although... To space issues, space alert miss, Tr- galaxy trucker hit, Tobago hit, Arabian Nights miss. Yeah, you can see things have really turned around. After those rocky months, with the, my first big mega haul, uh, things are going really well. Cyclades miss. We actually played this game several times. This, I think, was the nail in the coffin because we really loved the auction. The you know the, the way uh, you know every round it's 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 a dudes on a map warfare tactical skirmish game. Really loved the auction. And, uh, but yeah, it it just wasn't a keeper for us because we just didn't enjoy the area control. That was very boring. We wished the auction stuff, we we would have liked the whole game just to be about that. Um, But then all the dudes on a map stuff, so that was a very educational game. Uh, Fjords, still own it to this day. Another game I'm very happy because back then it wasn't that hard to get a copy. Now it's very, very hard to get a copy. So I'm happy I still have it. Ghost Stories, that was an interesting one. I loved it. Jen hated it. Because this is the game we learned that, because hey, I'm still looking for cooperative games if I can get it. This is when I learned that Jen does not like cooperative. No, 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 that's not true. I learned Jen does not like cooperative games that put her under too much pressure months earlier with Lord of the Rings, the cooperative game, but this cemented it. Because I just thought it was brilliant. I'm like, honey, look, this is so much like Pandemic. We're moving around. We're, you know, we're, we're going to hotspots. We're using our special powers. There's so much stuff. And she said, yeah, but it just won't give me a break. It just will not let up. And she just, man, it was a total miss. But it was a hit, big hit for me. Another very educational game for us. Uh, two to Mayo. We never actually played this. I'm very ashamed to say. Um, because, it, again, it's, it's a two-player-only area control game. It's very asymmetrical. It, it retells this you know, very important turning point, Civil War story. It was in Spain, I think. Uh, I think it was a Spanish game. Maybe it was a Portuguese setting. I think it was Spanish, though. And um, you know, after we had tried Cyclades, 
We figured, you know what? No, no, we don't need more area control. So this is a, this is a, a dubious distinction. The first game we got rid of without actually playing. Ah, um, let's see. Oh, under the shadow of the dragon, man, was that a major miss for me. Uh, this thing really taught us. Yeah, we do not like pick up and deliver. Although here's the thing: at the time, we didn't understand it. I mean, we, I mean, we didn't really know the terms. I, I think we probably knew what the, we knew what co-op meant. We knew what worker placement yet, but we didn't know most game terms. And, you know, if you'd said pick them and deliver, I'd go, oh, you pick things up and deliver? Okay, let's give that a try. And that's what Shadows of, of the Dragon is. I'm just Shadow of the Dragon, and man, we hate it. This is, uh, this is probably Jen's first really important critical observation she made about the quality of gameplay that was, it just, you know, just simplified things so much. It just made it so clear when she said, yeah, this is just busy work. This is just walk over here, pick a thing up, tarry it someplace else. Maybe something will get in your way along. It's just busy work. And I had to agree. And that's our problem with the pick up and deliver. It's a very special pick up and deliver game that we enjoy. Uh, Under the Shadows of the Dragon. You know, it, I'm sure it was nice. I'm sure it's great if you like pick up and deliver, but that taught us stay away. Oh, no, no, it didn't teach us because, again, we just, I didn't realize that it was the pick up and deliver specifically that we didn't like. I just agreed with her. Yeah, this just really feels like drudgery. This just feels like busy work. This feels like going through the motions. Miss. Um, okay. Oh, also, Arkham Horror. Talk about an education. I remember at the time, you know, th- there weren't that many board game videos back then, but uh, you know, I mean, Scott Nicholson was still doing his thing. Tom Vassell was doing his thing. Um, maybe Lance Meister was doing his thing. Maybe there were a few people, but not very many. And um, But there was this one guy, and he doesn't make videos at all anymore. He only made a few. But he made this epic how-to-play Arkham Horror thing. It's weirdly, he filmed in a motel room somewhere, and he laid the game out on his bed. It was like a multi-part thing, and I figured, hey, okay, because I, oh, previous to this, last month, Agricola was a very scary thing for us. It was the heaviest game we played to date. It was very daunting. But I have to say a huge thank you to Scott Nicholson, who did a very wonderful tutorial video that walked you through. And it, it really made it easy for me to, um, to, to learn that game when I was still fairly new. Scott Nicholson, there's no way you're ever going to hear this, but thank you so much for paving the way. Thank you for teaching me how to pronounce Agricola. And uh, thank you for teaching us how to play. So, off the success of that, I figure, hey, this other guy made this really great Arkham Horror thing. It's even bigger. It's even more complex. What the heck? Let's give it a try. I know it's hugely popular. It's one of the most popular games out there. We should totally try it. I'm still trying to learn what we like and what we don't like. I've got this really great um, uh, tutorial. And, oh my god, we hated it. Hated it. It's weird. This is the same month that we loved Runebound 2nd Edition, and we hated Arkham Horror. So I guess the jury was still out for us on Ameritrash. Honestly, I, don't, I bet you I didn't even know what the term Ameritrash meant at the time. I just knew these were both very, very popular adventure games. And hey, Jen and I, we loved adventure video games. We love adventures. We thought we'd like it, but man, Arkham Horror was such... Was so bur- Those rules are burdensome. They are overwrought, overcooked, overweight, and just get in the way of the fun. And then the other thing, I know we were playing right, because I have ultimately, I've played um, Arkham Horror now, I think, three or four times, including with other people who know the game very well. And so I know we were playing correctly. And the thing is, people always talk about how hard it is. I've never found it to be very hard, because it has this really weird thing where, okay, right at the beginning, it looks kind of scary, um, and it looks kind of overwhelming, but the more portals you close, the easier it gets. 
Um, and yeah, we just kind of, every time I played it, I found it to be a cakewalk, even when playing with experienced players. And maybe I've just been lucky every time, but that aside, the fact that to actually play this with Jen, I had to go on Board Game Geek, this is the first time I ever did this, and go to the file section and print out, because uh, somebody had made a really nice flowchart. It was a multi-page flowchart, and we had to use this to be able to, all right, okay, so here's what happened, let me go through the flowchart, okay, this, and now you do this, and now this happens, and now this happens, and man, um, lesson learned. Stay away from games like this, because that was a... Although, but like I said, at the same time, Runebound, which... Well, I mean, Runebound was interesting. It had a lot of that same kind of burdensome, uh, top-heavy, lots of rules, but it worked well, and it was crazy long, but it worked well for us. But we didn't realize at the time it worked well for us because of really brilliant Euro mechanisms that drive the whole thing. And, uh, yeah, so anyway, Arkham Horror, huge miss. Mr. Jack was a very clever game. And we both really liked it, but I didn't keep it. And there were a few things about it. Um, or did well. Actually, I don't remember. Ultimately, we got rid of it. A big, big problem, the easy thing was, Jen just fundamentally did not like the theme. Um, whether she was playing Jack the Ripper, or whether she was trying playing the person trying to save Jack the Ripper, it really, it, you know, really rubbed her the wrong way to be trying to have some yucks, just to have some fun over such a serious subject. And she just couldn't get... That was a huge turnoff for her. Um, and But I think she liked the gameplay. I think she liked the gameplay more than me. Because, you know, this is a very in-your-face, move, counter-move, I'm doing everything I can to try to figure out how to ruin your... how to beat you. And, you know, we both thought it was fine. But, yeah, I mean, ultimately... But actually, I don't think we made... I think we kept this for a while. I think I even ultimately got Mr. Jack in New York. And ultimately, I got rid of both of them. I think that's the case. So the jury was still out. And actually, yeah, that's right. Because we did. I did get Mr. Jack in New York later. And I think it wasn't until much later that Jen said, Yeah, you know what? I just... I just don't like this Mr... I just don't like being Jack the Ripper. This is too gross. I think she was willing to go with it. But the more we tried it, the more it just rubbed her the wrong way. And it became another defining feature for us. Jen is now very clear. She won't just go with the flow and say, Yeah, you know what? I, I don't particularly find this theme palatable, but we'll go with it. She won't go with it anymore. So that was a huge important step for us as well. And then the last one on this list... Oh, no, no. Uh, next last one. Uh, then we have Small World. This is really interesting. We both thought the core mechanism was really neat, the way you select and you, you jump over. You know, I mean, you have a whole bunch of different troops you could get, and they're wildly different in terms of their overall strength. But if you want to skip the crap ones to get to the good one, you basically have to put money on the crap ones, and that, over time, makes them more and more attractive for somebody to eventually take. That's brilliant. I am surprised you don't... I mean, that's been in a few games, but not very many, considering how awesome it is. But, uh, you know, this was another Dudes on a Map game. We played it. We both thought, yeah, that was pretty neat. Although, I'll be honest, I don't think... I don't really think uh, Small World is at its best with two. It's okay as a two-player, as a chess match, basically. But that game is really at its best. And the interesting thing about that is, I ended up taking Small World to work. At this time, I was working in Bromley. I had a two-hour commute to get there and a two-hour commute to get back. And at lunch, because I couldn't come home to see Jen at lunch anymore because it was too far away, I would hang out with my coworkers, um, which is a pretty rare thing for me. And, uh, I mean, you know, actually, most of the company wanted to just play... First-person shooters, uh, you know, MOBAs and, and all kinds of stuff. 
uh, you know, over in the network at lunch. But there was a group of hardcore gamers. And it's weird. I mean, I didn't realize it, but at the time, months ago, that Jen and I were discovering Pandemic, um, you know, about in, in campgrounds in France, they had already been playing Pandemic for months at lunch, and I just never knew. I knew there was a group of guys over there in the, you know, using one of our conference rooms. I didn't know what they were doing. Um, and, you know, and, and then when I, when I got back to work and I was talking about, oh my God, this pandemic thing was amazing. They're like, yeah, where have you been? We've been playing it every day at lunch for months. Like, ah! So, you know, at, at the time that Jen and I were learning, I didn't mention, I was still, I was playing board games at lunch almost every day with these guys. And, um, the interesting thing is, you know, most of them were, were theirs. We were, uh, I, I, a lot of it was pandemic, but when I took Small World into work, that became our group obsession for the next six months easily. We played Small World every day. Every day at lunch. Uh, every player count you can imagine. Every combination. Um, and that was interesting. I, I went with it. I, I mean, I wasn't crazy about the fighting, but it was fine because I really loved the gameplay. And the thing I discovered I loved most was the, ta- the mind games. Um, because I'm not saying I was the best player. There were definitely better players than me. But I won as often as not. I was a very dangerous player. Not because I made smart tactical and strategic decisions, but because I was very good at screwing with their heads and convincing them that I was no threat. Because, of course, the, the trick of that game is nobody knows exactly how many points everybody has because you keep it all face down. It's not revealed until the end. And it was... It, I mean... I was able to use sales tactics that I'd learned over the course of my life to convince them, no, 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 you don't want to come after me, you want to come after Matt. Look at what he just did. You don't need to remember that two, you know, that I've been doing a slow, steady trickle this whole time that doesn't really look that dangerous, and I don't have hardly anything on the table right now, so you really shouldn't be worried about me at all. Matt's the threat. And Matt's like, what are you talking about? I'm not the threat. And somehow I could always convince these guys. Uh, uh, really fond memories of that. Ultimately, Small Worlds, months later, um, after Essen of that year, got replaced by Seven Wonders. And then that became our obsession for a long time. And we had an obsession for Mansions of Madness. We played that a ton, and I was always the dungeon master. Or whatever, whatever it's called in that. Um, you know, and there's several others. I have a lot of really fond memories of playing with all those guys. Uh, um, although, still, I have more fond memories of playing them with Jen on the weekends when I wasn't at work. And then the last one for that month, like I said, was... Um, oh, and actually, although this one was one that I picked up after... This was another one I bought on Board Game Geek after I got back home. I got it from another British person. Because by this point, we really knew we loved Agricola. So, uh, Agricola... That, this is our first expansion, isn't it? I think it is. Yeah, this is my first expansion I bought. For, at this point, what is our favorite game? Um, you know, because we'd already played a ton of Pandemic, and at this point, we, we were trying all these games, but we just keep going back to Agricola over and over and over again. I've probably, we've probably got close to 100 plays of Agricola under our belt now. Because we, we were playing it so much at this time. And, man, as much as we loved Agricola, when you added Farmers of the Moor, it just phew, became amazeballs. Um, so that was very successful. So, anyway, the month of April... Huge success. Um, and now we are, you know, I mean, after our first game of the pandemic, we were hooked, but we didn't know it. Now we know we're addicts. Well, certainly I'm an addict. Um, and because, you know, I, you know, up until now, hey, it's just a few games here and there, but there's this huge explosion of games in March and another big list month after month after month, and it just keeps coming. Every time I go back to the States, I, you know, I, I bring back 20 games or so. Um, you know, I'm, I'm buying more and more stuff, and uh, you know, eventually I start buying stuff in England because I just can't wait for my trips. You know, I, I get to the point where I'm spending four or 5000 
dollars, not pounds, dollars a year on board games. This is back when I was working full time and I could afford to do this because we were so hooked. You know, in this first year, we go from one game to a hundred games on our shelves that we keep. Uh, but anyway, that's, that's big picture stuff. May. Big thing that happened here. Um, was, well, there's a couple of things. Uh, well, one, I discovered promos and I went promo crazy. I don't have a list of all the promos, but man, I just really fell in love, you know, and that really cemented my Pokemon-esque gotta get them all completionist streak that I have now finally, I'm older and wiser today and I realize I don't gotta have them all. It doesn't matter if I don't have every little blister pack expansion or every little promo card out there. But for years, starting in May, after I started picking up some promos, and I, I, actually I'm kinda of bummed myself, I did not write down which promos it was. Um, uh, yeah, but anyway, I, I, that was a big deal. I, I started buying promos at five or ten bucks a pop. I started trying to trade for promos because I didn't, I wasn't in a position where I could get promos because I didn't go to conventions at this point. Uh, that was still a ways off, but yeah, promos were a really big deal. I, I, I just made note of that. Oh, the other thing that was really interesting that happened to me, um, the month of May was the first time that I realized that. Yeah, I mean, I, I realized this in previous months that, yeah, I don't know if I can necessarily trust just random people on Board Game Geek who say, yeah, you know what, Shadows of the Camelot works great as a two-player game. Give it a try. This was the month I realized, yeah, I mean, not only that, I don't know if I can trust this Tom Vassell guy because, man, he's been such a great help for me so far. But um, this month, what game was it? Because I, I wrote down, this was my first disagreement with Tom. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it was when he did his review of a game that I had gotten back in January that Jen and I very much enjoyed. Uh, what was it? Um, oh, right, yeah, the, the Island of Dr. Necrow. And we thought, yeah, this is a really cool game. And then I watched his video just for the heck of it. I already had it. I didn't need to watch the video, but I was just kind of... I watched every one of his videos religiously. And, you know, and, and he was a real um, you know, bellwether for me. Because you know, he was by far the most... I mean, he was producing 90% of all the videos that come out at that time. Of course, nowadays, he produces 30% or maybe 20% of everything. I mean, he still is a prodigious um, you know, a guy. And he was still a huge boon to the overall. And I, I respect him. I like him. I haven't hung out with him to say we're friends. But, I, I mean, heck, I wouldn't mind considering myself a friend of Tom. But this was the month that I realized when he did a review of Island of Dr. Crow, and it was so obvious to me that, wow, you totally did not get it. You, I mean, you totally missed the... I mean, you're just wrong. You're, obje- you're saying things that are objectively wrong. Not that he got the rules wrong, but that he was drawing conclusions that I knew from my experience playing the game were just radically incorrect. And of course, you know, if I had a nickel for every time I radically disagreed with Roger Ebert or somebody like that, I'd be a rich man. But I, that, I, I had not made that connection. That can happen with board games. But it can. And it was Island of Dr. Crow that convinced me, yeah, man. I can't trust anybody. I can't trust, uh, I can't trust my instincts because I don't know yet. I can't trust, um, you know, random people. I can't trust even the, res- the reviewers who I respect. How am I going to continue to play games? I know. I'll just buy everything. And then that became my mantra for the next couple of years until I could really learn what it is we love. I remember this, um, back at this point, one thing I was doing. I don't even know if um, Board Game Geek has this feature anymore. There was a thing where, um, you know, if you saw people who liked, ga- well, first of all, one thing at this point, Board Game Geek had, oh, do you like this game? Here's some other games. We, th- I know that's completely gone now. I did use that a lot back in the day, and it gave me some good results and some bad results. It was, but it, it, yeah, I guess that's why it's not there because it, it just, 
it wasn't as reliable. But I also started noticing people who did like stuff I liked. And when I read why they liked it, I said, yeah, that's exactly why I like it. So I started using, um, like, it's the, the Bergamy has this kind of friend system where you friend people and then you can get recommendations for, hey, well, if these, if you like what these people like, here's some suggestions. That worked pretty well. I was using that. Um, but the main thing I was having to, I mean, I was just starting to have to build my own lexicon because, of course, you know, at the time, Jen and I were fairly unique. We didn't want to fight each other. Uh, we preferred co-ops, but Jen didn't like high-pressure co-ops. We had all these weird little peccadillos. But let's see, what did we do in May? What do I have here? I didn't make a trip, so it's a smaller list than last month, but I got Arcadia, Catan the Card Game, Forbidden Island. Oh, wait, no, no, this wasn't, because I remember Forbidden Island. I did pick up, so I must have made it. So these are mostly trips to America again, because I know Forbidden Island was. Um, Forbidden Island, Le Havre, On Guard, uh, Fresco, All Things Zombie, Race for the Galaxy, Medici vs. Strozzi, and Odin's Ravens. Let's see, how did those work? Arcadia? I think that might be the second. No, 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 we did play it. We did play it. We did play it. We played it. I, I got it because, oh, I thought the... That, yeah, that's the one where you do a lot of stacking of pieces. The board becomes like this 3D playground. I thought that'd be really cool. We thought it was cool, but it was too aggressive in your face. Didn't care for it. Catan the card game. I was really kind of bummed. I wanted to try Catan. And in fact, that's not, oh yeah, uh, Catan. I did play a couple of games of Catan with the guys at work. And I said, oh, wait, we, we really want to play Catan at home because it's very good. But it didn't work. So we tried Catan the card game and that was very good, but it was crazy long. And crazy mean. Crazy in your face mean. So I got rid of that too. Forbidden Island. I was like, hey... Pandemic was amazing. Roll through the ages was the thing that saved us from giving up. Matt Leacock, you were two for two. And now you're bringing out this new game, Forbidden Island. Oh my gosh, let's get it. It looks so gorgeous. Miss. Wow, that was heartbreaking. I mean, obviously it works. It's a neat little game. But, you know, it's a game for families. It's a game to play with kids. It's just so incredibly light. Um, I guess we'd had this experience kind of with Castle Panic. But here, this was, this was so depressing. That, um, you know, and I wanted to keep it, but there was just no good reason. We tried this game like, probably a half dozen times back to back over the course of a weekend and said, yeah, there's just no reason to play this game. No combination of characters can make this interesting to us. Uh, so that was a big, big thing. Uh, Le Havre. Actually, you know, because, oh, look, uh, we love Agricola, let's fly Le Havre. And we loved Le Havre. And I loved Le Havre for years until I eventually learned that we were playing it wrong. And I've talked about this in the past, uh, so I don't need to go into it again. It's in some old podcast. But basically, after I, years later, after I realized how to play it correctly and we tried playing it that way, suddenly we did not like it at all. The game was almost kind of broken and Monty Hollish. Not that it is. It works fine. But um, I always said, well, should I go back? Should I go back to playing wrong? Um, you know, because we... We were doing loans incorrectly, and it made the game a lot tighter, a lot tougher, a lot more Agricola-like and a lot less Caverna-like, which is what Lahav is really like. And uh, But I just couldn't do it. I, I, I just wasn't comfortable playing the game wrong, because then I'm always worried, well, is the game unbalanced? Is it, is, are we, are we, have we really messed up the stuff? So I ultimately got little Lahav. But for a couple of years, we really enjoyed the heck out of that thing, because we played it completely incorrectly. On guard... That was neat, cute little Kinesia duel, fencing duel. But you know, I, I, I just it was it was a nice little it was a nice little bit of fluff. There wasn't enough meat on the bone for us to keep it. Fresco, though, man, Jen fell head over heels in love with this one. And you know, it's interesting. I think this is our first game with a dummy player. Yeah, where to make the two player work. Unlike last month, where we had very bad. 
failures of, hey, I mean, because there, there's several ways you can make a good two-player game out of a game that was designed to be played with three or four or five or whatever. And, uh, you know, some of them work well for us, some of them do not. The, hey, just make it a four-player game where each player has to control two is the worst thing in the world for us. Normally, um, you know, if, if the game is designed from the ground up, you can do some really good stuff with scaling. That's generally the best thing. But Jen and I, more often than not, we have found dummy players work wonders. And Fresco was our introduction to dummy players, the Leonardo character. And we thought, wow! This is so cool. It gives us so much more to think about. We love this. Why don't more games do this? And to this day, I still say, why don't more games do this? Someday, I'm going to do a top 10 dummy players. Um, just to try to convince people that they're wrong. People who just have this violent, allergic reaction to the notion of a dummy player. Um, it just makes no sense to me. Because they work so... When they're done well, they are so amazing. They make the game so much better. But anyway, so Fresco, that was a, bi- that was a big milestone game for us. All Things Zombie. This one, I don't think it ever got played. I don't believe. I remember... Oh, I don't even know why I picked this up. I don't think that was originally the plan. I was aware of it. And yeah, uh, yeah. this was again... It was, it was an L.A. trip. And I just went, I went to another... L.A. at this time had so many board game stores. Every time I'd go, I'd go to a couple new ones. I went to one... I want to say it had Knights. You know, like K-N-I-G-H-T in the name. And they had this there. And um, I think at this point, this was the most expensive board game I'd bought. Because I knew I couldn't get it in Europe. And I was really, really interested. It's, it's a cooperative zombie. Fight them off. I got it back home. I wasn't planning on getting it. I didn't ha- and talk to Jen about it all. Not that I talked to Jen about this much at all. Jen, she didn't care. She didn't get on Board Game Geek. She, I think she does have a Board Game Geek account at this point, but she never logs into it. I think I made it for her, and she logged into it once. But yeah, she has no interest in doing research. She's just happy to, do, to play whatever I put in the table. Um, anyway, so I brought this home, and she said, yeah, I don't want to play that. She had already decided by this point, yeah, I don't want to play games I don't care about. And this is like gross, scary zombies. This was years before Walking Dead, to confirm this for her. But yeah, she just had no interest in the subject matter. Didn't want to run around shooting guns. So it never got played, um, which was weird. Let's see. Oh, Race for the Galaxy. We actually held on to that for years. Really liked that one a lot. Um, interestingly, strictly speaking, Race for the Galaxy... I have to, it kind of counters everything I just said, because that's a game where, to scale it for two, they basically kind of sort of have you playing... Well, you don't play as two players. It's more like uh, Dungeon Lords, where you basically play with two hands of cards instead of one. It worked, though. It worked for us. And we kept it for a long time. Ultimately, though, we got rid of it last year or the year before when Roll for the Galaxy... No, no. We got Roll for the Galaxy... Fell hard in love with that. Jen, it's one of her favorite games of all time. She will play it anywhere, anytime with anyone. And we just realized, yeah, you know, we love Roll so much, we'll never play Race ever again. So I only recently got rid of it. Very sadly, without ever getting a chance to play the expansions, although we had them, we just never got around to playing them. And Race eventually, years later, got replaced with Roll. But man, I mean, we, we had a lot of good times with Race for the Galaxy. Very much enjoyed that. Oh, Medici vs. Strazi. Liked it. Very neat. Um, one of the first auction games we played I think, yeah, that must be one of the first auction games. You know, of course, this is an auction game that's designed solely for two. Works really, really nicely. Uh, still own it, in fact. Haven't played it for years, but uh, kept it. Um, and on the flip side, Odin's Ravens, Odin's Ravens, another two-player specific game, you know, in that same two-player box size, did not like it at all. We just, I mean, 
At the time, there was a fair bit of hype for this. This was before it went out of print and was impossible to find. And or no, 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 that's not true. It was already out of print and impossible to find. And I remember I wanted to get it because I was looking for more two-player games. And people said, "Yeah, this is one of the premier two-player games. You got to play it." And it was impossible to find. But I was calling around to board game stores in Los Angeles. Oh, that's the one. Yeah, the and um, and it was the, I don't remember the full name of the store, but they had knights in the title. I called them and they said, "Yeah, we've got it." And like, ah, put it aside. I'm zipping over to you right now. And as I was afraid, somebody was just going to snatch it up. And they got there. They just had it for retail price. I don't think they realized at that time how it commanded very high prices because it was almost possible to find. So I was very excited. That was like one of my big first finds. Yeah, I got it. Nobody could get this game. Yeah. And then we just, we didn't like it at all. Really kind of in your face, kind of super light, just not even remotely interesting. But anyway, that was the month of May. Big stuff that happened. Then we move on to the month of June. And this is the last one. This... For fo- Sorry, folks, if you just don't care about this at all. Almost done. This is the last month I um, I made note of. Because a couple things happened this month as well. June was the first month that I ever got involved in a math trade. And those, for years, were a huge part of my life. I mean, because uh, there was... Was it twice yearly that there was a UK-based one? Or no, maybe it's like once a quarter there's a UK-based one. And then there was also an EU one. And I was, I was a regular for years at those. You know, I mean, because at this point, you know, I've got this big mountain of games. Um, you know, because if you've been listening to this, including the top ten I did, I've, I've had a lot of misses. And, what, and they're just trying to stack up. What am I going to do with these things? Oh my God. You know, I was trying to sell them. I was trying to engage in individual trades because Board Game Geek has a very nice system and it still works really well for engaging in trades. So I was trying to do it, but then I found math trades and my world exploded again. Although amazingly, I looked it up and my first math trade in this month of June was a horrible disaster. I actually traded away my um, Guitar Hero plastic guitar and a few games um, and I was like excited about what I got. And I don't know how I messed this up, but I ended up with two copies of Pandemic. And I don't know why that is. Because I already had Pandemic. I think I was trying to get on the brink and I screwed it up and I, I, I don't know what happened. And I ended up with two copies of Pandemic to go along with the copy of Pandemic I already had. And that was a mistake. And, um, but I was undeterred. Next month, the following month, I got rid of those two copies of Pandemic and flipped them for uh, good games. I also, in that following month, flipped Red November and Arabian Nights, and I got a, I got a bunch of good games instead. But anyway, I'm not doing July. Uh, but June was very important because I discovered math trades. I learned how to do them. Um, like everybody, I made some terrible mistake and was very unhappy. Everybody... Try it. Don't be afraid. Know full well that when you try your first math trade, no matter how careful and prepared you are, you'll make some big mistake and you'll end up getting something you don't want. But that's okay because you'll be able to get rid of it in the very next math trade. That's what happened to me. I got those two pandemics I didn't need and I was able to get rid of them. Easy peasy. The following math trade, no problem. Um, and uh, oh yeah, maybe at this point they were doing it monthly. Was that it? Was the uh, UK math trade monthly at this point? Yeah, it was. No, yeah. Oh, that's what it was. It was, um, it, they were bi-monthly. Every month there was either the European one or the UK one. And I was in every month just constantly trading games. But also I did get some new games in June. It was a little bit uh, of a slowdown. I got Draken, Traders of Carthage, uh, Claustrophobia, Escape. Huh? That must be wrong. I did not get Escape Zombie City. Oh, did I get Escape in 2010? Uh, I made this list, folks, months ago now, so now I'm not even sure I trust it. Let's see here. What year? 
uh, BoardGameGeek.com Escape. Escape didn't come out in 2010. No. I don't know what that is. Oh, whoops. Oh, I see. Ha ha. Oh, I've gotten my list mixed up. All right. No, this is from another list. Uh, because the rest of the stuff that's on this list is entirely wrong. Yeah, so forget that. So, ooh, I've got my list mixed up. So, all right. Well, all right. I'm going to have to end with a whimper, folks. Um, I'm sure I got a few more things than uh, Draken, Traders of Carthage, Caravellas, and Claustrophobia. But Claustrophobia, big hit. Gotten every expansion. Still have it to this day. Awesome dungeon crawl for two. Um, we love, love, love it. Traders of Carthage, I think we only played that once. And we played it on the floor of an airport while we were waiting for a plane. And we both thought it was neat, but I don't remember what happened. I, it's a blur to me now. I know I traded it away, even though I thought we both liked it. I, I couldn't tell you what, what went wrong there. Um, uh, Traders of Carthage. Oh, uh, Draken. And, uh, yeah, uh, Dra- Draken. Yeah, that was nice. I think it's still up in the attic. At this point, I don't think I'd ever want to play it again. But at the time, it was kind of neat and clever and fun, you know, trying to go through this dungeon and turning tiles around. And, you know, it was kind of take that. It was kind of in your face. But it was all in good fun. It was very lighthearted, very beard and pretzel kind of game. Again, at this point, I don't think I'd want to play it again. But at the time, it seemed nice enough. One other important thing happened this month. I made my first Essen pre-order because we were planning on going to Essen. And, uh, and I started on board game. Oh, look, I can pre-order games. So they'll pick them up. It was Caravels from the uh, Portuguese designer Gilo Ray. And you know, because I, I read about it, I thought, wow, look at that board. It looks gorgeous. I love the idea that it's describing. Got a pre-order just based off that. Not pre-order off reading the rules or knowing anything or having any kind of pedigree. Just pre-ordered it and um, ultimately got it, got it back home and we learned, hey, you know what? Maybe more research is uh, worthwhile because it was a neat game. But what I didn't realize, if I'd been paying more attention, I would have noticed, hey, it says pick up and deliver here. And I've already had a terrible experience a couple months ago with pick up and deliver. Why I didn't put two and two together and realize at this point that we hate pick up and deliver because I thought Caravels was neat. I thought the way it modeled wind uh, in, in the means of actually you know sailing from Portugal to the Far East and then sailing back, because you sail all the way to the Far East, you pick up your rare spices, and you sail them back for points. And so I loved the idea, and I just didn't understand, why don't we like this game? Now, I grew up on a sailboat. I mean, I'm... I'm I, you know, it's kind of in my DNA. I should have loved it, and I did. I thought it was really cleverly implemented and very smart, and yet we found it very boring. I know now why. It was pick up and deliver, and we hate pick up and deliver. But at the time, it just kind of confused me because um, I still, that was a very important board game skill that I had not yet realized of, hey, you know what? Eventually, you're going to real. I mean, I don't know why. I worked at, I played video games all my life. I knew I liked shooters. I knew I didn't like sports games. Somehow, I had not, I was still such a noob, I had not realized that there were all these different mechanism categories. And some mechanisms just don't work for me and Jen as players. So, I think I'm going to stop right there because, man... I just spent 15 minutes on that. Um, but anyway, that's as far as my research went. I know there are a few more things in June, but unfortunately it looks like I kind of messed up my, um, my, my notepad list here. So we'll end it there, folks. And you know what? Man. <sighs> See, now I would go on to Q&A, but like I said right up front, Jen's not here. 
And there are some good general purpose Q&A things. I mean, I, I was thinking I would just have her just do the personals when we got back. But I'm looking at them. There's some good regular ones too. So I think next month is going to be a big Q&A list. I think it's going to be a big Q&A. Jen will be back. So for people who don't like that, I know there's a lot of people who don't. Fair warning. Um, I'll be talking about fewer games and talking about more game categories and whatnot. And I think this is as good a place to stop as any, folks. So... Thanks for listening. Now, uh, as always, if you'd like to get some more questions in, send them to questions at rotto.com. It's not too late. I'm thinking next uh, episode might be 90% questions. So uh, hit me and Jen, whether it's questions about games or questions about anything under the sun. You ask it, we will answer it to the best of our ability. But uh, So that'll be coming next month. And otherwise, that's it. Once again, thanks for listening. Have a very, very nice day. Talk to you later. So long. Thank you.